Hello, welcome to Into the Aether. It's a low-key video game podcast. My name is Brandon Bigley. I'm Stephen Hilger. We have so many things to talk about today. So many things. We were potentially going to divide this up into two episodes, but then we had the crushing realization that if we did that, Next week's episode would be not about Zelda Tears of the Kingdom <laughs> after it came out, which again, not beholden to the release schedule, but I think people would think we were I'm sick. beholden to Link. I'm beholden to Link and Zelda and Prince Sidon. I'm beholden to the Triforce of Power, Stephen. <laughs> I just if we release an episode without specifying why that wasn't about Zelda after Tears of the Kingdom came out, it would come off like we were the most contrarian, like <laughs> Fedora tipping, like actually it's my sixth favorite. You know, like oh my god. We would lose everything. Yeah. So we've chosen yeah. to not follow the path of chaos. Yeah. Not even a content play, just more like a I'm gonna not be able to restrain myself from talking about Tears of the Kingdom yeah. that week. I do think like whenever we have recorded like the only the stuff we do that's like kind of recorded way ahead of time that's like banked for release is any percent yeah. on the Patreon. But with the episodes like anytime we have recorded like uh, an extra in advance, we like regret it because something wild like <laughs> Chris Pratt gets cast as Mario the next week and we're like talking about you know, Star Ocean. It's like, fuck, <laughs> we, we could have we been relevant. <laughs> I don't know why Star Ocean is my stand. We've never <laughs> talked about it. I do want to. It's just funny. I do want to talk about Star Ocean one day. Yeah. I really want to play the PS2 one. Here we are talking about Star Ocean. <laughs> yeah. I have uh, one of the older ones on Switch. That's Where's Chris Pratt? Been on my backlog for, backlog for forever. <laughs> anyway, uh, we wanted to do a section about updates. We wanted to revisit stuff that we brought to the show, I think, last week. Yeah, it was last week. Um, and had more to say about. So. On your end, it's more Jedi Survivor content. On my end, it's more Honkai Star Rail content. Yeah. I should say content. We're just talking about it. What am I, what am I doing? <laughs> Dude, that's why we're here. We're down in the mines. Content. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There, there's uh, black plumes of coal surrounding us <laughs> as we mine out that great Honkai Star Rail content. Tell me about Honkai Star Rail. How's it going? I, I let me just on my end. Um, I am exactly at the same place that I was at when we recorded last week. Um, I opened up the game yesterday to play it before I went to bed. And it was like, would you like to download 15 gigabytes of updates? And I said, Shh, okay sure and then fell asleep while that was happening uh, i fell asleep while, while i was watching the loading bar go up uh so i, I have not played anymore you woke up with like five more comet shards You're like oh hell yeah i did a thing yeah i brought to the show last week and it was sort of a cautious recommendation i uh not neither of us really have much genshin experience and we have enough free-to-play experience to always be like uh right. like it's the kind of thing where it's like i don't want to definitively say like this one is fine because it's such a subjective thing these games are kind of made to monetize in different ways psychologically and even if it's the kind of thing where i can discern like oh this is maybe not as like predatory as as a different game of the genre it's something that i always want to make clear so last week was a lot of like terms and agreements recommendation of like uh you know there's this this and that but it is kind of fun yeah i played like way more of it so (laughs) Last week, I had played basically the tutorial, and this past week, I have played, I would guess, like, at least 75% of the story on the first planet. Wow. So, a quick pitch of the game's story overall. It's, it really is like Star Trek, which is probably why I'm enjoying it. Yeah, same. You are essentially, like, of a crew on a space-traveling train, which I love, uh, the Star Rail, and you stop at different planets and just try to help them out. Mm -hmm. But imagine if the away team was like, you know, 
constantly breaking the prime directive in the most anime way po- possible <laughs> you know like that's basically yeah the experience they're like we're from space yeah if you've never watched star trek before the prime directive essentially means that when you are uh approaching a planet that hasn't made contact with like the federation which is like starfleet the whole deal you just you just can't you can't make contact until they make contact first they they have to have achieved a specific like scientific level of of accomplishment before starfleet will reach out to them to join the federation and in honkai star rail yes that's exactly what happens they just like show up on a planet and they're like we're not from this planet how's it going yeah march 7th will like (laughs) tell you while taking a picture of the both of you that she's from space yeah and (laughs) completely undo like religions and societal right because i think in the history of of star trek like there was a time where the federation would like grant civilizations that were maybe behind in technology they would give them modern technology right and that completely disrupts the flow of history you know like imagine if like in the industrial era we just gave someone a smartphone like what would happen Mm -hmm. you know so the thing with this is like the planet we're on is not necessarily like technologically behind i mean they probably don't have spaceships but like it seems to be of the same era but their culture is very isolated um like the idea that there are new people in town everyone's like what because there's just the one town yeah it's essentially like this this winter planet that is devoid of life except for this town that the first time you go there you get to you know you're on the sort of upper crust so it's like you know it's where like the one percent live basically um and then a little bit further into the story uh no spoilers but just sort of basic beats this happens pretty early on you get thrown into the lower uh class area which is like a mining town yeah the music of the mining town chef's kiss it's incredible where they mine out content for their video game podcast (laughs) anyway um so like i think this game like the the first couple hours i was definitely really enjoying the battles and i was enjoying the aesthetic of like the animations and you know it's a a really beautiful game like the way even the opening menu looks like the train and in space but i had some issues with the character design and i don't think the game puts its best foot forward at all in fact i think it opens pretty poorly it's like a lot of terms thrown at you right away uh the two like villain characters or or at least mysterious characters you play in the beginning i didn't really care for at all they kind of felt like parodies of of those types of characters i also think they're so much cooler than everybody else that you meet for a long period of time that's like wait why why are they leaving why are they exiting stage (laughs) left i want to hang out with them Then you then the first thing you hear is like, hi, I'm March 7th. You're like, what is this? Like, what am I playing? (laughs) Um, But like, as soon as you like get on the ship and meet the crew and you're given like the much more simple pitch of like, we're just going to go to planets and help them out. It's like, okay, that's all I needed to be told. Like, we should have started here. Yeah. The fact that like this sort of like chosen one narrative of the trailblazer, the protagonist is like fine, but it's not, I, I actually am way more invested in sort of the more local stories happening. Like with the crew, they're like companion quests where you like help out a specific character and kind of get to know them a little bit better. And also just like the story that's happening on the, first planet it's nothing like you know it's nothing that's going to blow your mind but it's it's fairly familiar but i do think it's about something like just just the idea of this city you know sort of like tales of arise or or even gravity rush 2 like this city that has like 
class-based levels to it. Um, that's something that a lot of games kind of tackle. But I think seeing the smaller stories happen where like there is a character who runs a clinic in that uh, lower part of town. And one of the quests for her character is just to like talk to patients that aren't showing up for their scheduled physicals and check-ins uh and they're all basically like i don't have any money and like natasha is like too idealistic or natalie i forgot her name nat something they're like she's too idealistic like i i need to like do my job or like basically everyone is prioritizing their finances over their own personal well-being which i think like is pretty resonant right now i mean especially like after the pandemic and even just like for, for my own life like right now i have to my dentist is like, you have to replace your crowns. And I'm like, cool, that's going to cost so much money. Like until it's a problem, I'm not going to do it. And like, you know, in my case, it's not like an urgent medical thing, but it is me putting my finances above my own well-being. You know, so seeing this happen in like this type of game, it it connects. Like I think that's the sign of a good story where you can relate it to something happening in your own life. And then there's also a story of like rebellion happening where there's a group called the Wildfires. uh, And there's also a sentient robot that is like purely driven by logic who is causing problems for everyone because <laughs> he's determined that it's like the only possible long-term solution is to like hide in a cave basically so anyone that doesn't want to do that he like attacks with robots <laughs> and like i love that that's great and the characters you meet in that story too i think are more compelling and kind of getting a sense of like okay we are the unknown variable here Um, like we are the like party that can maybe change or alter like the future for this planet. I enjoyed that a lot. Like I haven't seen it all the way through, but I've enjoyed like learning more about the different parts of the city. And in those moments, I kind of forget I'm playing a free to play gotcha game, which I don't mean to say like that that's inherently a bad thing, but I've in my experience, having not played Genshin or other games like this like i've i kind of have a certain level of storytelling to expect and i'm honestly really impressed by what this game is doing narratively and it's also really funny and like really like even though it is covering somewhat heavy stuff like it's it's really doesn't take itself very seriously like every few hours you get a text from one of your party members and they're all like really weird and really funny and that's like totally taken me by surprise given what i was expecting based on the first couple hours so Happy to say, like, I'm just enjoying it way more for narrative reasons. And the combat, too, continues to sort of blossom. I didn't really talk about it too much last time, but basically you have a party of four. Every character is tied to an element and they also have their own class. So, like, there's a class that's all about healing or, like, making shields for your party members. There are classes that are all about doing a lot of damage to one enemy. And there's also, like, you can really, once you have enough of the uh they're called light cones those can really kind of change how a character operates um and there are also characters that are like kind of made to have like solo synergy like uh march 7th who keeps coming up she can make shields for your allies but she also has an ability where whenever an enemy attacks a character that has a shield she'll get an extra attack like she'll just fire a bow at them right away yeah and that builds up her special constantly which is she fires a giant bow and freezes all the enemies. So like all of a sudden March 7th's role is not simply just ice damage and shields, but like I'm actually able to really affect the turn order here because I'm constantly getting the ability to like freeze enemies and slow them down Mm -hmm. and attack in between turns. And yeah, she just becomes her own little machine. And she's, she's one of the free characters. And I, I've already kind of noticed that like, like I have at this point without spending any money, I, I pulled a five star character 
who's like fine not the one i wanted which is of course how this works <laughs> um i have a five-star character and i have a, around 12 characters in total and again that's like just by playing which i would say there are i think there are six characters you get just by playing the story and i think the team that operates the best for me is uh, the protagonist, March 7th, and the uh, medic character. And those are all free characters. And from what I've read, I've done a little bit more reading. And there's actually a pretty informative discussion happening in the Discord after we released last week's episode about like how these games work. And everyone had very different opinions. And there's still a lot to criticize. So I'm not, I'm not bringing this game up again to absolve it of the judgment we had last week. I think last week, I would still say all those things. But what I've kind of noticed is that the game is not monetized in a way that is to prevent you from progressing. Um, like there's definitely check-ins and there's definitely like materials you need. Like you need to advance your overall trailblazer level to do more of the main quest stories. But I I found that most of that is to keep the game in pace with itself because the ability to level characters is almost entirely tied to items you get. You could theoretically like level up your character way too quickly. So I find that most of those systems are not there to make you spend money, but there to make sure you don't just like max out a character before like you need to and then just steamroll the whole game. Yeah, which could be what you're paying for is what you're saying, right? Like if you wanted to spend a bunch of money, you could hypothetically just get all your characters to a really high level and just like roll through the story without really engaging with the combat. Not even what I'm what I'm saying is that doesn't seem to exist. Like there's not really a way to pay. To, like I think you can you can pay real money to get a currency that I think is able to buy certain things, but it's mostly the star rail passes, which are the pulls. And from that you get either characters or light cones. Mm. The actual items you get that level up your characters seem to all be just, you get them from battles and from like in game merchants that only take like an in game currency. Mm. That's good. Yeah. The only thing that I noticed is that, so if you're paying for pulls from the star rail train or the, the rail passes or whatever they're called, yeah. um, I think the only thing you could really level up through that are the light cones because you can use light cones to level up other light cones if you want. Like you can, inf- exactly. you can kind of break them down into their base components and then infuse them. Yeah. Which is fine. I guess I think it's also because it is a single player experience like there isn't really a lot of pressure to do that unless you just don't want to play the game as it's designed. You could always just go grind right you could always just like go out into the wild and just fight a bunch of enemies. Yeah I mean the thing is you don't really get a lot of experience from battles. So really the only way to level is with the items, but you get the items like they're called adventure journals. You get them from doing battles Mm. and from like doing quests in general. I haven't really found like I'm only at a point now where the level cap is 40 that I found that I've run out of materials to like max everyone out. Mm. But there isn't really a lot of pressure to. So again, like this could change. I'm not saying that this is going to be everyone's experience, but I don't like I've played free to play games where like it is very clear I've hit a wall until I pay yeah and i feel like as long as you like aren't playing too much in one day you're not really going to feel that way with this game the way this game i i think and this is you know again just how i felt while playing it but i share this with you a little bit but it's like as i mentioned before i'm enjoying the story on this planet and there are characters there are two characters named sila and branya who are essentially like 
the main characters of this story arc. And they're really cool. They're honestly great characters, and I would love to have them in my party. And of course, they are the five-star pulls that are basically impossible to get. <laughs> so I said to you, I'm like, it's as if you're playing FF7, and you're watching all these cutscenes with Tifa and Bear, and you're like, they're so cool. I would love to have them on my team. And your team is Biggs and Wedge. That's who you got for free. <laughs> and it's like, it, I can make it with Biggs and Wedge, but it would be really cool if I had these characters right and then you finally get enough <laughs> currency to get a free pull and you get like a weird little kid with a teddy bear it's like I didn't want this I wanted the characters that are in the story why is there a kid so I just I think really the the big pull no pun intended is like you want this cool character don't you mm-hmm. that's I think the biggest pressure is yeah. like it's not that you want them for combat efficiency, even though I'm sure they're great. Like you have everything you need, but what do you want? And that's where I think the game kind of gets its fangs into you where like uh, there are people that I imagine are pressured to drop a lot of money to get the seasonal you know, poster character. Mm-hmm. And again, like I'm not, I'm not trying to, um, if you're someone who like, this is the game you're playing, I think it's totally fine. Like as long as you're not putting yourself in financial strain, I don't think it's a bad thing to do that. Especially if like, this is the game you play and you've justified like a certain amount you can spend. But the fact that there's really no, like uh, in maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but the fact that there are no like systems in check to prevent people from dumping like unthinkable amounts of money. That's what kind of makes me always feel a little gross while playing it. It's like, I know that I'm not going to do that. The one thing I did for science is I bought the welcome to the game. Here's a seemingly great deal because we told you it's a good deal five dollar welcome package i got that just to see just to see like what's different like do i all of a sudden feel like i can do a bunch of stuff Mm -hmm. and the answer is like not really the answer is you get (laughs) like i think you get 90 stellar jade every time you sign in like every day basically and that essentially like might let you buy another star rail pass and like (laughs) okay like i almost regret spending that money Mm. i think that it's more uh seemingly more interested and this is more akin to a lot of live service games where it's like they want you to play it a lot they want you to check in log in get the login bonuses do the dailies get the that stuff and i don't really mind that i don't think that's inherently like nefarious but i'm on edge because i think the thing for me and and i'm going to share a little bit of this because i think sometimes when we talk about free-to-play games and we talk about sort of the worst case scenario of that where it's like predatory for people with gambling addictions we hear about like the really worst case scenarios but it doesn't have to be a worst case scenario to still be a problem yeah like i remember i had i had fire emblem heroes which is a game you and i've talked about we've enjoyed it i think it actually is a good way to interpret fire emblem on a mobile device and it's not a bad intro to fire emblem um but i had that game on my phone for like three years and i had stopped playing it like a year in but i still would open the app like every day just to see like what i got Mm. and i i wasn't playing it i didn't even really care about it i wasn't showing off the cool characters i had gotten yeah something about the app psychologically just made me want to check it Mm. and then there were times where claude would show up and i'd be like oh hell yeah i want claude for a game that i am not playing And I found myself spending like 40 bucks to get Claude. And that's when I deleted it. I'm like, this is not a logical decision that I would have made consciously. If I opened Fire Emblem Three Houses and there was an ad for DLC where Claude was like in a Santa outfit, I would not pay $40 for that. But something about just the way the app is designed and, and the way they want you to engage with it, I did that. And, and then I deleted it and I'm like, I, 
that was kind of scary. And since then, I haven't really I've been on edge. And that's why, you know, when I even download this game, I'm like, I don't want to fall for that again. You yeah, know, totally. I think that's a great thing to bring up. And and something that you and I mentioned in last week's episode, and we've also talked about in general, just about free to play apps in the past is like, right now is the best time to play Honkai Star Rail, because right now is when they're going to be at their most generous with that kind of stuff. Right. And, yeah. I, and if I to take the most cynical approach possible about the way this game is designed, if I was to guess, and I, I don't know if this is true of the other Mahoyoverse stuff, but at least in in the case of Honkai Star Rail, it feels so much. And I think it's one of the brilliant things about the the general design of this game is it feels so much like this kind of Star Trek away team thing, which means every time they do a content drop, it could just be a new planet with a new story interrogating new themes. You know, like right now we have this class imbalance and the kind of like welfare and health services kind of thing going on, which is very cool. Who knows what the next planet is going to be? And that's exciting. But also the idea being, you know, six to eight months from now or in two or three years from now when there's like four or five planets down there people might ask themselves hey can i get into this game and the answer will probably be like you're going to be really far behind but you can play that first planet without needing to worry about paying for anything but it's when you're at the end of that and you're moving your way onto the second planet or the third planet or the fourth planet is when all that stuff starts really ratcheting up but i would guess that the methodology again this is a very cynical take on this so it might not even come to fruition but my my most cynical take on this is that the methodology of design for this game specifically is like this first planet is supposed to be the one that kind of like hooks you in sure and then it's the second and third planet when you need to like really be you know have your watchful eye out i guess yeah i I would guess i mean the thing is like there's the story quest and then there are like sort of combat gauntlets that give you like a lot of rewards. Yeah. There's like a roguelike kind of thing. Yeah. And it seems like those areas of the game are where you might need to like roguelike is a really funny thing to say. Yeah. It's, it's roguelike like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like like Zelda. Uh, Dude. Uh, no, don't put like likes in. <laughs> I paid $20 for a Santa like like. <laughs> um, oh no. it's a weird worm uh the 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 thing is i'm just imagining like the most fucked up music video for santa claus is coming to town and it's like rudolph and all the reindeer and and on the sled it's just like like just like throwing up presents you've been naughty bones <laughs> Link's like blue tunic. Go to bed, cover up your head, cause like Lex coming to town. <laughs> um, Just like a stomach acid addled uh green tunic. Dude, five star Santa like like is broken. Um <laughs> he can just eat enemies and they don't have any weaknesses anymore. Actually, that's helping them. Whatever. Um <laughs> Yeah, I, it's hard to say because the other thing that I learned about Genshin just and this is just from, you know, conversations I saw in the discord and also um, reviews I've read. It seems like it's almost the opposite problem where it's like the big new characters are not as good as the ones people got for free still. Mm. So there's almost like a it's like, why would I want to engage with this if like I already have what I need? Yeah. But that kind of goes back. I, I think the big thing is that they allow you to spend money in a lot of different ways. It's not clear what you're getting out of it. 
which is kind of suspicious. I mean, my case, for example, yeah, I got the great deal, and it's like, is, is it? <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I think I think the the big pull is really just that feeling of like I could have a cooler party, or like I could have the characters that I personally like the most. Yeah, and there's no price on that for some people, you know. So I think that's if I had to guess, that's where a lot of the marketing goes and a lot of the money comes from. Because I mean, again, when they drop a new character, they make tens of millions of dollars like the day it's announced Mm -hmm. so all that to say like i think that you know i am also a newcomer to this kind of game even even with the research i've done and the conversations i've had and seen uh i could still be slightly off base here but i think there's a lot to be weary of and a lot to be critical of but i think as a game it's great like i I think if this was just a 40 40 to 60 dollar rpg i would have purchased it and Mm. had a great time yeah i even saw someone in the discord say like i wish there was a pay once model of this game and that got me thinking like you know could that exist like could they say like hey here's the free-to-play version but here's also the like full price version where you'll get everything the thing is so much of the gotcha is like baked into the game systems that like i don't know if that's possible but i think there's still a way to do the thrill of like you know pulling a rare character without monetizing it like we've seen games do that. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I think Xenoblade Two did that with like the blades, where like you got random characters and it was just part of the game. So yeah. I, th- I think it is a really cool RPG. I think it's worth checking out if you're a fan of like SMT Persona. Honestly, the turn-based combat is like really good, and I think it's really fun. And the thing is, like, it's not a case like Fire Emblem Warriors where I was opening the app without even wanting to. Like when I open this game, it's because I want to play it because it's fun. But it's hard to let go of everything. So that's yeah. kind of where I'm at with it. I- I'm much much more positive on the experience, but I still have my guard up. I'm not fully embracing it yet. Yeah. I, I totally get that. I also just think it's rare to have a, a big triple A game like this come out and be turn based <laughs> like that. I think yeah, that's, right. that's just inherently exciting to me, at least uh, as somebody who is now into turn based stuff and and will always be the reason I will probably like progress this game instead of downloading and going back into Genshin ever again. Like this, this will be kind of my go to for this company, at least for the foreseeable future. Same with me, I think I've been having a great time with it. So I'll report back what I'm curious about is like how I feel at the end of the year. Because I remember mm-hmm. that's sort of what happened with um, League of Legends Wild Rift, where like I started that game and was enjoying it. And it was my first time playing any kind of league game. And it's become a mainstay for me. Like I haven't I haven't felt the need to spend any money and I play it constantly. Mm-hmm. So like that's kind of my like gold standard. Plenty to criticize of that game, too. But like <laughs> in terms of how it fits into my life, I feel like good about when I play it. So if this game ends up hitting that level of like it's fun to check in every now and then and I don't feel pressure then it will become something that I just like enjoy checking in with. Yeah, yeah. And I, I also am thinking about like the stable of of main state. Sorry. All of the cables just came flying out of my Dreamcast. <laughs> I think there was like, because I am standing at my standing desk and I think I think there was like surface tension, like kind of pulling them out of the Dreamcast. Oh, no. <laughs> it's like a ghost being like, absolutely not. No Sonic. Yeah, what about you. me? You can play <laughs> Fantasy Star. <laughs> Uh, anyway, I, I'm thinking about the the like the sable of of mobile games that I'm playing on, you know, 
current basis at the moment. And the the one that I do throw money at every once in a while is is Marvel Snap. And that's usually just like the season pass because I'm just like interested in seeing how the new card that comes with the season pass kind of changes up the game. And if generally it's like pretty exciting and like fun to build new decks and stuff. But at this point, playing this game for almost a year, I have spent on Marvel Snap, which is, you know, ironic considering I'm an employee of Marvel Entertainment. Disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. I'm just like giving my money back to the company. <laughs> the paying me. And I'm like, here, you can have some of it if you want, actually. Here you go. But um, it's it's the moments in which they're like like currently right now there's like a hundred dollar bundle to get like a variant card art version of the collector which I'm like does this need to be a hundred dollars I don't know like it comes with other stuff obviously and it's like maybe a good deal I guess for some people but I'm like I haven't spent a hundred dollars total on this game <laughs> like I'm yeah right I'm not gonna blow it all at once on this one thing and just even having that button floating above all of the other stuff like the normal like daily check-in stuff like gives me the the willies it's it's actually like tales of arise like every time you're at camp but there's like a big dlc button yeah yeah exactly yeah, it's like yeah man um and that that stuff starts to rub me the wrong way and and i haven't experienced that in in Hongai star rail yet um and it sounds like you haven't either and that's probably for the best so far but it's definitely a game worth checking in in a couple of months and seeing if that's still the case, I guess. Or yeah. like I, I, at the rate that you're playing, it sounds like you're going to get to the end of the content that's in the game pretty soon. And then the question becomes like, OK, what's next? Is that roguelike thing enough to sustain you until the second or third planet comes out in a year? You know, I think there is a second area currently because I, I there are, I think, 20 characters you can get. And about half of them are from the second place. Oh, interesting. Um, which creates some kind of disconnect. Because I'm like, why are why are we partying with these people? I have no idea who they are. Yeah. Uh, really strange. But it's, yeah. Or better yet, you have someone in your party and then they text you to like meet them somewhere else. And you're like, yeah. huh. But yeah, I mean, I think it, it just feels like the effort of this game. Like they definitely made the game first, which sounds kind of silly. But like sometimes you play a free to play mobile game and it's like the game almost comes second to what they're trying to do here financially. Yeah. Yeah. You'll see like ads for games that are like clearly Candy Crush, but it's like j- just like a uh, sweet smack or something. And it's like just a, a blatant ripoff of Candy Crush and the whole thing is like yeah we just put the 99 dollars button in front of every other button that you would try and press to be honest i think the experience reminds me a lot of final fantasy 14 just in terms mm. of the pacing of it where like you'll do a really cool story mission that grips you and then someone's like can you dust paintings for like two hours uh and like that's kind of it feels more live service mmoe than it does like free to play yeah if I, and that comes with different critiques right because i mean FF 14 is an incredible game and is in many ways the gold standard of an MMO. But like go on the website and there's like 30,000 different ways to spend $20 for no reason. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so much like it's not in the game in your face, but you can like buy a bunch of random stuff and you can. And there's also the monthly subscription, which is like kind of a dated model at this point. And the thing is, I get that these games like require constant support. So like they do require to be like sustained financially for a longer period of time than a game that comes out as a concrete finished product. Yeah. The line, of course, is a little bit blurred now that games can be updated. So like it almost feels like a lot of AAA games launch in a beta state at this point where they're like, mm. give us a couple months to, to <laughs> put this back in the oven, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, I may or may not be talking about one of those later. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think with Honkai Star Rail, like so much effort went into like making it a good game. And it's silly to say that, but like, that's, that way. Yeah. that's what I walk away feeling. I'm like, this game is good. And I wish 
part of me wishes that it was just like a full price game I could recommend without any caveats. Yeah, I will say alongside that, um, I was recently uh, honored to be the second guest on a friend of the show, Kyle Starr's new podcast called Why Button, which you should check out. Yeah, um, which was the, the, the show is about like why we love games, why we love the industry, why we love talking about them, things like that. Um, it's a great show. You should go check it out. But towards the end of that conversation, Kyle asked me a question which was essentially to the effect of like, what do you what do you think is like next? Like what like what is interesting to you about like what's coming down the pipeline in, in video games right now? And for me, one of the open ended questions that I think is becoming more interesting as time goes on is not like VR or the metaverse or like any of that stuff. It's more just the fact that the the model of how we make and finance games is like clearly broken. Everyone in the industry knows that it's like an op- it's not even a secret. It's just an open fact that AAA game development has ballooned to the point where it takes too long and is too expensive and is not really working for anybody for the most part. And I think where that is pivoting to is people taking another look at live service games and like figuring them out, actually. Like, I think only a couple companies really out there have actually figured out how to sustain a live service game in a way that makes sense and is like exciting still for players years later. I mean, you look at Bungie and what they've done with Destiny and they've had some like rocky stuff over the years, but they're generally speaking, always settling in a place that is like at least meeting the basic requirements of what players want out of destiny right every once in a while they're hitting a little under the mark every once in a while they're punching way above their weight but generally speaking they're like hitting that median pretty well you look at things like Fortnite, like apex legends these games that are still going on years and years later i think it's starting to serve as a blueprint for the other games that aren't working right like there are other games that we're constantly seeing coming out that are live service games that just like can't sustain themselves or companies like don't don't understand like the I, I would imagine the executives don't understand the amount of time and effort and money it's going to take to actually keep that stuff up and like push it into the place where it will be successful and kind of its own flywheel that's sustaining and i feel like we're starting to settle in a place where these companies are starting to understand like there's a there's a playbook now like there are a bunch of there are a bunch of examples that you can point to and say like okay let's see how fortnite does this and let's see how destiny does this and how apex does this and we can use those as kind of the bedrock for the thing that we're building going forward and now you can point at genshin and you can point at honkai star rail and you can say like these are also interesting games that have some really interesting payment models and some really interesting ways of like making sure that our studio stays afloat uh while we continue to make this game into the yeah. future and i'm i'm really curious about how the impact of Genshin and Honkai Star Rail are going to ripple out into the future. Like a thing that we've talked about in the past is PlayStation has at the very least 10 in development first party live service <laughs> games, which they just gave a statement uh, on. I forget who it was. I don't think it was Jim Ryan, but some, it might have been Jim Ryan. Somebody gave a statement from PlayStation Studios last week or two weeks ago. That was something to the effect of like all 10 of these games are going after completely different audiences and like different kinds of gameplay styles. And they're not just all going to be like, you know, God of War, third person over the shoulder narrative experience, but also somehow a live service like they're they're breaking out of their kind of auteur style for that studio for these live service games, which honestly, as you know, there's a, there's a really cynical dark take you can you can uh you can look through i think on that idea of like all of these studio acquisitions that playstation has done over the past couple years are just leading to like them trying to copy destiny over and over and over again even though you already own bungie and destiny (laughs) but simultaneously i do think we're getting into a place where the giant studios are starting to recognize the unsustainability of the industry and that we need we need to start figuring something else out like we we have like it's it's an imperative for the well-being of like everyone who works in the industry to like uh stamp down on crunch culture to just like 
not have these ballooning, ballooning, ballooning studios that just like, you know, release one game. I, th- I think sh- I could bring up Redfall now. Like Redfall is a case where like Xbox Game Studios brought in Bethesda, brought in Arcane. They made this game. They've been working on it for years. It didn't hit the level that everybody wanted it to. And that's just like years down the drain, unfortunately, you know, whereas in another world, and I, I would suspect if you've if you played Redfall or seen any reviews or like watched any gameplay of it, it's pretty clear that it was supposed to be a live service game at some point. Like it feels to me like a game that had a lot of live service elements that they stripped those out of. And I wonder if there was a more sustainable path to success if that game was live service, if that game had an early access thing like Grounded does, for example, on Xbox uh, Game Pass right now. Like you can go get the early access version of Grounded, which is a game people love. If that might have been the path for Redfall to succeed was like, hey, if this game right now, as it exists currently, launched as an early access game, I don't think people would be like losing their minds over it on the Internet. Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I I just threw a lot at you. No, no, no. It's it's I love this. I I love when you say enough things that I have to go like, hmm, and like like three different Mass Effect choices come up. (laughs) Tell me more about live service. Um, No, but uh, I I think it's that's the renegade option. The thing about yeah, it is. It's the investigate renegade option. The thing about <laughs> it'd be funny if there was just a renegade pop up right to slap you like while you're talking. That's, like, that's stop that's it. That's what I was thinking as soon as you said Mass Effect. Yeah. Like, but yeah, I mean, I think the thing about live service games, it's not that it's an, an inherent negative. Right. But I think it is like a more visible business in mind structure. Mm-hmm. Like the veneer is kind of off where it's like, yeah. oh, I, I need I like the game is kind of asking for money in a more direct way yeah. than they usually do. Video games and a lot of entertainment have always been like an inherently capitalistic thing. And video games, I think more so than than most other art in a lot of cases. Sure. Just because of the amount of people that are involved and, and the and the financial interest involved and the amount of money that like games on the whole as an industry bring in. And I think you're totally right to say that. Like as soon as you get into the live service realm, it's like, oh, you're suddenly confronted with the fact that things are costing twenty dollars if you want your character to look different. Yeah, I feel like live service, like the feeling you get in your head and stomach when you hear it is like eight shades more positive than MLM. You know, it's like it still has <laughs> kind of a stinky vibe to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the, the thing is like the <laughs> live service games, I think the challenge in making them is like live service games are designed to be the one game you're playing. Yeah. And that means that if you are setting out to make a new live service game, you are trying to pull someone away from either Fortnite, Final Fantasy 14 or Genshin Impact. Yeah. And it's like that means you have to be the best thing ever. Yeah. Uh, or, or at least I mean, not that those games are the best, but like they're all wildly successful at what they're trying to do. Fortnite, I think even more than a shooter has become like Fortnite has become the closest thing to what people who pitch the metaverse is yeah. like, you know, I think it is a place to hang out and to like, it's honestly kind of interesting. And, I, and I, I'm actually genuinely excited to see what comes of the like game maker tool that is within Fortnite. Yeah, it's really exciting, which is a whole other conversation, uh, you know, and, and it, that that kind of goes back to, you know, people saying the metaverse and VR are the future. It's like anytime someone says something is the future, it is guaranteed to not be like the way time actually progresses and what actually manifests as being like the next thing is kind of out of everyone's control yeah, it's like as a much as like yeah. yeah right <laughs> it's sort of like trying to like control the flow of a river it's like you can kind of gauge where it's going but you, you don't have any say in this you could dig a big hole but are you going to dig a whole river probably not that's going to take that's going to take a community yeah know? dig a big pit and say this is the next big thing <laughs> <laughs> That's what anyone pitching the metaverse is doing. I do think to take a step back, though, 
I think on your point about live service games competing with like all the other live service games in terms of like being the one game that you play a lot of these studios and a lot of these big executives also are pretty open about the fact that like if you're trying to build the the one game that somebody is playing you're also competing with like Netflix and the internet and a smartphone you know you're competing with like yeah right you're competing with like scrolling on Twitter you know you're, yeah. you're competing with just time like people's time and that's that's where it gets really dangerous and that's I think where I'm there's there's the cost side which is a thing that you and i have been talking about extensively for almost this whole episode so far there's also the time side which i think is equally dangerous right like going back to your example of fire emblem heroes just the idea that you're spending time every day doing that is is almost worse than the idea of you going in and spending money that one time you know in a lot of cases and that that's the thing that i'm most afraid of when it comes to the kind of the proliferation of live service as like the go-to model for a lot of studios. And what I'm hoping, and we've seen it from Bungie, they've been really open about it, which I'm really thankful for, but they've, they've been pivoting away from the idea of like FOMO as the model of game development for that game. Whereas in earlier seasons, there were bits where it's like, if you didn't check in every single day this week, you missed out on the gun that is going to be the meta defining weapon for the rest of the season for the next like 90 days, you know, and you just can't be competitive and you can't play to the ability of everybody else because you missed that one week of play which is when i bailed out of destiny that was like the point where i was like i can't do this anymore and they started to realize that that is not a sustainable model either because you're just going to start bleeding players because if they miss one day you're punishing them for missing one day of not playing destiny yeah it's a wild thing to do so i'm hoping that that's also part of this kind of push into live service as like a, an exploration ground for new sustainable business models i guess uh, when it comes to making games is like also not punishing me for missing a day or like missing you know half of a season because i didn't know a game existed yeah i i don't know i i think you're right also to say you hear the word live service and you get like that uh, the hair on the back of your neck kind of stands up i also think yeah. a lot of that has to do with the fact that we've just seen the most corporatized worst versions of them over and over and over again. That's the thing. And we've yeah. seen them fail so quickly so often also. Like, that's the other thing is these games come out and then immediately tank or immediately go away. And that leaves a community of people, you know, even if it's like a thousand people who are playing the one first person shooter live service game that they were excited about when that goes away, they're going to be burned on the idea of live service forever, you know, from that point on. And they're going to be very vocal about it. Yeah. Right. So why invest this time and money if it's just going to disappear? Yeah. The other thing too, is like, I mean, going back to your other mass effect thread of, uh, just like the cost of AAA games. I honestly think like the thing I want and the thing that I would be excited to see, and, and I don't know if this is going to be like the new model, but I, I think it might be a sign from the universe that like the early 2000s are back in that we're seeing remakes of Metroid Prime and Resident Evil 4 yeah. and Dead Space and also the success I mean I think you can not to further dunk on Redfall but it's like look at the success of Hi-Fi Rush versus the the mm. reception of Redfall and it's like Hi-Fi Rush is a game that was announced out of nowhere no marketing campaign a pretty bad trailer but it was just dropped and it was a very concise very focused had a very clear goal in mind and it's a digestible game and people love it yeah. Like, yeah, I imagine that's going to be on a lot of people's goatee lists. And, you know, it, it, it's hard to replicate that. I'm not saying that that's the new model, but I do think it's really as simple as having a clear vision and making a game that can be enjoyed in a more digestible. If you're not making a live service, I think the, you know, the model of, of AAA inherently having to be the biggest and greatest and always the next step. It's like Hi-Fi Rush is very much a game that would have come out on the GameCube and it feels just 
just as fresh as like a new big open world game. Yeah. And I, I think that's one of the benefits of Game Pass as a model. And I think that's one of the reasons why, like when I see people talking about Redfall and they're like, well, Xbox is fucked because Redfall is bad. It's like, well, that's not the case at all, because the idea of Game Pass is that you can make smaller things like Hi-Fi Rush as a way to sustain that business model and to keep people interested in the service. And every once in a while, there's going to be a big swing like Redfall or a big swing like Starfield. And ideally, those would hit like ideally those would also work out. But, you know, when when you look at when you look at the history of Game Pass in the past year, a lot of people are pointing to like, oh, there's been no big AAA hit or like Halo Infinite didn't work out or whatever. The answer is you still get things like Hi-Fi Rush. You still get things like Pentiment. Like there are still releases that are like blowing up and getting people really excited and really interested in the service, which is, I think, really fascinating. And and that, again, is just another business model, right? That's that's just another way to compete against somebody like Sony who is just making, you know, God of War 2. And I I just forgot every other PlayStation Studios game. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the thing. It's like, I think Sony found the model that worked for them and there's sort of a flattening there, which kind of bums me out too. Like, I think, um, I hope they invest more and especially I'm like fully dreamcastified at this point. And like, (laughs) talk about a era where people were just like, green lighting any idea you had right there's something really magical about that yeah, you know totally. and we can't fully go back to that but i do think like if you are if you are a publisher that has a ton of money and like a sort of guaranteed source of revenue like why not take risks mm-hmm. you know like I, I just i think the the idea of like every next blockbuster game being one that like whether it's live service or whether it's a big open world game they're all wanting you to like fully invest in it but they're also treating it like as if this fails we're just scrapping it you know and it's like yeah. that is that needs to go away yeah so i'm hoping we see like i mean i think that's also why nintendo has succeeded with their first party stuff for so long is because they have you know i mean it's a little bit like disney where they have like their ip and stuff but they do like make games with a dedicated vision and you kind of know what you're getting into but you're also open to seeing what it does new and and i think that there's like currently i feel a bit of a lack of excitement in the next sony first party games i kind of know what to expect at this point which is comforting for some people and maybe that will change the only constant is change you know this is not the case with sony in our lifetime so like who knows what's ahead but yeah i mean the ps3 generation by itself is a great thing to point at right because for half of that generation that wasn't the case and for the latter half when they reinvested on making like these big bombastic kind of triple a almost cinema-esque games was when the ps3 turned around right and they were like oh that's what works for us sony as a company yeah right after you know sony all-stars wasn't the hit they needed um (laughs) sweet tooth fighting Parappa the Rapper while Metal Gears just walk around in the background. Weird that that didn't work. (laughs) No one knows what the future holds, but I just think that like, I would like to see more kind of singular, like this project is about this. We're going to give it a shot versus like this game is the biggest thing ever. Yeah. I'm, I just, it's so funny. Whenever we talk about this stuff, I always just feel like a, like an Xbox fanboy, which I extremely not just to be clear. That's like, I'm, I'm not really a, a fanboy of any of the consoles. If I'm being totally yeah. honest, what's that big check on the wall? It says, <laughs> thanks BB. Love Microsoft. Love Philip. Um, yeah. That's the thing that I think is the most interesting about Xbox's strategy right now. And it's why you and I talk about this so much is like a lot of the studios they've acquired are studios like Double Fine, for example. I'm watching the the Psychonauts documentary and I'm like at the point where Double Fine gets acquired by Microsoft uh, specifically to like throw not only Psychonauts 2, but also like the backlog of Double Fine stuff into Game Pass. And a lot of the reasoning behind that decision on the Double Fine side was like they're almost totally hands off. They're just buying developers whose visions they really believe in and allowing them to make the games that they want without 
the the like concern of how are we going to fund it, right? Because Psychonauts one famously had a really like fucked up development cycle where the studio almost went under in the middle of it because they just ran out of money. The same thing happens if you watch the documentary with Psychonauts two about halfway through where their publisher kind of falls through as well, um, and they need to like figure something out really fast. And and Microsoft is like the kind of most pragmatic option because it allows Double Fine to continue being Double Fine and to continue making things like Psychonauts two if they want to. But that's that's the thing is like if they want to, and you can hear Tim Schafer in in that episode where they're talking about the acquisition being like, I'm excited to just pitch ideas again like i'm excited for the first time in a while to just like come up with new game ideas and pitch them and not really have any pushback from a publisher because like i just know that they believe in our vision as a studio and that that's why xbox is so exciting to me right now because that's how you get things like hi-fi rush and pentiment which are like absurd ideas like pentiment as a game that you're going to invest a bunch of money and time into to release on game pass is like an absurd idea it's an absurd amount of work while also being small in scope it's like just this kind of weird like venn diagram of like it seems easy but is actually really difficult yeah and is a huge risk and a huge swing and it totally paid off and worked out and that's really cool and on the sony model that doesn't work like on the sony model you need to kind of play it safe a little bit more which is a bit of a bummer but even in that and i I, just to be fair here even in that you get things like returnal which are again like sony acquires housemark known for specifically making like arcade shoot 'em up kind of uh you know twin stick shooter games and you get something like Returnal, which is, I think, like one of the most exciting roguelikes ever made and like one of the most interesting narratives ever told in a video game. And that's really cool. And that's like still small in scope for Stony, but was still a big swing that they took. And it like, again, mostly landed. Um, so I think yeah. we're like getting into that space a little bit more. I, 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 I wonder if people are starting to get a little bit burnt out on like everything needs to be the biggest and the best always because like smaller, cooler ideas are what made video games exciting, at least in the early 2000s, as you're talking about. And I do. I wonder there's a little piece of me that's like i wonder if that's where the 10 live service games come from you know is is this idea of like we're going to green light 10 of these and not all 10 are going to work out or be sustainable but they're 10 cool ideas that we feel interestingly about um and we're going to see how they work out and i think that's more exciting to me than being like we greenlit another sequel to another big triple a thing as much as i love that stuff and again i'm i'm going to talk about jedi survivor later so like i still like that stuff but i just think like what's going to get me excited what's going to get you excited and what's going to get like developers excited to make the games that they're making, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And like to be, to be clear too, like I, I think Sony's investment on being like the big blockbuster, like publisher worked out. And I, I love a lot of those games. I think it's only right now where I'm like, I don't want the direction. It's almost like, you know, Super Mario Brothers drops and then every game that comes out is a side scroller platformer that doesn't work. Right. Because it's not (laughs) Mario. Yeah. And I feel like Last of Us comes out and now every Sony first party game has to sort of be like a Naughty Dog game. In this case, they're all at least very good. Yeah. So like it's working. But I just I think that like this comes from a place of admiration because I think all of those you know, God of War, Horizon, Last of Us, Uncharted, all of them, Ratchet and Clank, which is kind of doing its own thing, which is why it's my favorite. <laughs> uh, all of those series have really different energies and different plots and should be very different experiences. But now, like, going from Horizon Forbidden West to God of War Ragnarok, it, like, kind of somehow feels similar, yeah, you know? And yeah. it's like, why? Why on earth does this feel similar? Yeah, I'm with you. So... We'll see what happens, but I'm just bitter about Gravity Rush. Really, is all this all what all this means? You know? <laughs> wow, bearing the lead. Uh, Honkai Star Sorry, Rail. Honkai is Star out. Rail's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Hoping I get Sela soon for that. You know, dark damage DPS. Oh yeah, but um, we'll see. I can't believe that this segment was almost an hour long. <laughs> we have so many other games we want to talk about. 
I mean, we're going to, we could still choose the path of chaos. We can still charge the listener $5 to hear the rest of it. <laughs> and also, <laughs> and also give them a New Jersey transit train ticket. Yeah. You have to download an update in the middle of the episode. You get it. You get a Secaucus Junction pass. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Someone make an NJ punk version of Honkai Star Rail. That's just in Secaucus waiting for whoever shows up. That is so, I should make that. That's my goal now. Oh my God. You don't, there's no gameplay. You're just waiting in Secaucus Junction and random characters show up and they're like, I'm also waiting here now. Okay. Let's take a break. Yeah. And let's come back take a break. Star Wars. Wow. I need to like reset my brain. <laughs> a lot of garbage in this head. <laughs> bye bye. Sometimes I have a thought of like putting like a like a sink into my head and just like letting it all come out. Do you ever have that? Like the valve logo? Yeah. Oh <laughs> yeah, kind of. Just like empty it all. Like let it all flush out. Yeah. Reset. Anyway, <laughs> see you soon. Steven, we're back. Hello there. Oh, shit. That was really good. I can do it pretty good, Obi-Wan. Yeah. <laughs> I was Just about, that line. I can't I can't do the rest. Yeah. I can do it. I can do hello there. I was yeah. about to go Jedi. Uh, <laughs> wow. That was a long conversation about the industry. Let's talk Dude. about space. Uh, what about MLM? <laughs> what about MLM? Hey, uh, I, I will show up at your door and I will sell you five different kinds of lightsabers and uh, I'll do like an in-kitchen demo to show you how much better they are at cutting. Do you want to be your own Sith? <laughs> That's uh, not a bad pitch for this video game, actually. Um, yeah. Man, all right. Jedi Survivor I talked about last week, uh, kind of just all over the place. My my thoughts were really scattered because I was just like really excited about it. Um, yeah. And I have now finished the game. I will say. Oh, my God. <laughs> I will say. How long is it? I, I, I don't even know. Yeah. I didn't look. I didn't look at how long my save file was. I should probably check. When I first played Persona 5, I finished it in two weeks. Yeah. So like you're doing great. That was also like a blur. I just couldn't stop for two weeks. Yeah. Looking looking it up on how long to beat, it says uh, generally speaking it takes around like 30 hours um oh, okay so it's like fairly fairly doable yeah it's definitely like a binge but like for me like a 30 hour game is like a comfortable two to three week journey yeah for me it was um just under a week of really just only doing that in a lot of my free time which was honestly yeah, fine sure. uh I, I didn't really mind i think the interesting thing about about jedi survivor for me especially compared to the original was the original i did space out for kind of like a longer period of time and liked enough i guess and ended up like putting down for a while and then finishing way after the fact but i wasn't like super compelled to just kind of go at it the way I was with Jedi Survivor. Like Jedi Survivor, there was a certain point where I just really couldn't put it down. And when I was talking to you last week on the show about it, I was like pretty early on. Um, there's kind of like an opening tutorial that happens on Coruscant, which is like the big city planet that you've seen in all the movies and stuff. Yeah. And then the next place you go after that is this this uh, city called Kobo, which is the one where you're like building up the kind of refugee camp um, and the little like uh, settlement. Um, there's like a farm. Uh, you can like grow crops. You can fill a fish tank with fish. You can do a bunch of stuff. Uh, you can go out on like little missions to save people around Kobo. Um, but on top of that, it's just a huge planet. It's just like a it's a big open world segment, essentially. Um, and there's a billion and a half things to do there. And there are a lot of NPCs you can talk to who'd be like, I heard this was happening over here or like I heard there's somebody like sampling the local wildlife to try and turn it into music uh, over in this area. And it'll just give you like a kind of big green area on the map of Kobo and you make your way over there, find somebody doing that. Be like, hey, do you want to come hang out in the 
saloon and now they're the DJ at the saloon. Stuff like that, which is very cool. I love all that stuff. The funny thing about this game, though, is that I think it gives you so much to do in that first planet that it's really, really easy to think that that's the whole game, Yeah, <laughs> which is a little bit where I was at last week, where like of, I would say, probably the, I don't know, seven or eight hours I had played at that point, over half, if not like four fifths of that time was spent on Kobo just running around doing side quests um, because they're all really compelling. They're all like really cool. And that that planet being so huge and having so much to offer makes you think that like I could just spend all my time here. And that's that's fun. And that's also burying the lead in terms of what the game is about and so much that the game has to offer. Because as soon as you leave that planet and move on with the story and make your way out into the world, you get so many incredible abilities and so much interesting stuff happens story-wise because I I think when I talked last week I was at the point where I like knew what the MacGuffin was and when we were talking about that mix of it being a kind of Dark Souls game and a kind of Uncharted game and a kind of Metroidvania game the Unchartedness of it hadn't totally revealed itself to me in its entirety in terms of like what the actual story was and a little bit past that you start to figure out and I'm not going to like spoil the story just to be clear. But the the main idea of of the game is a little bit like an El Dorado or Atlantis experience. Right, right. Via yeah. via the High Republic, which again is this like, you know, multi hundred year old era where the Jedi were like revered and cool and people <laughs> liked the space cops. But they had had this planet that was like notoriously hard to find stuck in this kind of like warped ass nebula that ships couldn't fly through that if you were a Jedi or if you had a certain compass, you could like make your way to and, you know, remove all the space stuff from that. And that's just finding an island in Pirates of the Caribbean that has a bunch of gold on it. You know, like (laughs) it's really it's really just that simple of a story. And I think that that's really compelling. And that's very much my shit as somebody who like loves Indiana Jones and loves Uncharted for that exact reason. The idea of like just taking that kind of story and putting it in Star Wars is kind of what I always want out of Star Wars. Like I think one of the one of the bummers about Star Wars for me and and Jedi Survivor doesn't really get into this as much or almost serves as like a counterpoint to this point that I'm about to bring up. But I find that so much of it just has to involve a Jedi. It has to involve familiar faces. It has to involve. Yeah, all all connects. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, it has to connect to this larger... It makes the universe feel so much smaller because totally. it's like, why we're in space, but it's all about these, like, five characters. I'm always going to Tatooine and going to the cantina. Like, why? Like, there are other yeah. planets. Tatooine, the whole point of Tatooine is that it's, like, in the middle of fucking nowhere in the outer rim. It's not supposed yeah. to be a place that's, like, a frequent hangout for everybody. What we're really doing here is we're, like, putting the molds of clay onto the wheel for a Knights of the Old Republic episode. Um, but, like... <laughs> That's what I love about the the first one, at least. I haven't played much of the second one, but the first one, and I, I want to, to be clear, that wasn't a snub. Uh, the first one is you could take the Star Wars, like there's, you know, there are Twi'leks and like droids and yeah. and Wookiees, but like if you took the Star Wars brand off of it, it would just be a really cool sci-fi setting. And in fact, mm-hmm. very much feels like the test run for Mass Effect in a lot of ways. Yes, yeah, totally. What's interesting about that, though, is like Kodor feels more hard sci-fi like it feels like like with if you once you explore the extended universe of Star Wars, but like there are stories in the EU and like stuff like Kodor that feel more not hard sci-fi in terms of it like making logical sense, but it just feels a little bit trekkier. It feels a little bit like more traditional sci-fi, whereas Star Wars, the movies are very much fairy tales in space. Yeah. And I think totally. overall the most successful Star Wars movies are like uh like it sounds like the game is taking Indiana Jones but in space, which is like you don't have to be too strict with 
the rules and with like the laws and stuff in Star Wars. I think the most interesting thing about the IP is like with all of the best IP, it can sustain any kind of story. Like the the, the universe yeah. that they've built at Lucasfilm is wide and broad enough with enough kinds of characters and ideas in it that you can tell any kind of story. You could do a rom-com in Star Wars like that would work. So oh somebody could make that work if they wanted it to. With Kit Fisto. With Kit, yeah, absolutely with Kit Fisto. Um, <laughs> Thank God it's Fisto. <laughs> <laughs> TGIF, oh, baby. Oh, shit. You tuning in or what? Oh, my. Yeah, I am. <laughs> <laughs> the whole episode is Kifisto appears and the audience goes so wild that that's the whole episode. So you actually learn nothing more about him, <laughs> but the love for him is retained. Yeah, I, I, I think I think my favorite Star Wars stories as of late are the ones that are unrelated from like, how is this person related to the Skywalkers? You know, yeah, right, um, right. Andor, I think, is a perfect example. I brought that up last week as like, sure. you know, that's that's just a show about like capitalism and the fascism machine. And that's like a fascinating thing. I mean, because obviously there's like Star Wars has already laid the groundwork for that. But also just in our present state as a society, that's like a really interesting story to be telling and to abstract that out via the lens of Star Wars makes it more accessible to people who maybe don't think about that stuff that much. Uh, right, and I think right. that that's like what good sci-fi is and what good storytelling is. Oh, totally. Yeah. The future is always about the present in a sci-fi story. Totally. You know? Yeah. In a distant future where a company owns 70% of all films. Like, huh, interesting. Yeah. All of that said, uh, Jedi Survivor just taking this like, you know, Lost City of Atlantis approach to to telling a story in Star Wars, like that's just the MacGuffin that you have to go find. I think it's really exciting. And obviously there are a bunch of different interests at play in terms of like, why does the Empire want this? Why do these Raiders want this? Why does this uh, other character who I won't bring up want this? And I think that that's, I think that's like a good foundation for a story. And then on top of that, obviously, is character work. And I think that's where this game really shines. Because in the first game, as I talked about, uh, Cal Kestis, who was the main character of that game, he was a kid when Anakin showed up at the like Jedi Padawan school and just wiped out all of the younglings um, and managed to escape with his master uh, and was just on the run as, as a kid, you know, like just trying to exist in the world, hiding the fact that he knew the force and was a Jedi and had a lightsaber because because essentially they they were just being hunted down and, and murdered. And a lot of that first game is just Cal coming to terms with the fact that like he is a Jedi, like just being somebody who has the ability to use the force and stuff is not enough to become a Jedi. Like you need to you need to kind of like live up to certain standards and certain ideals. Um, and that's a lot of what that game is about. Um, and I think that's interesting, but also is not the most interesting thing in the world when you have like multiple movies in that canon that are already tackling that exact same idea. Sure. Um, so I, I hear a lot of conversation about Fallen Order being like, at the end of the day, it really just kind of is a similar story that we've heard. Like even the big bad is like, you know, one of the fallen apprentices of somebody else, um, which essentially at the end of the day means it's like just another Kylo Ren as the bad guy. You know, that's like uh, in the in the telltale Game of Thrones game. It was like the main characters were like bannermen of the Starks and yeah. the villains were bannermen of the of the Boltons. Yeah, it's, it's, like, it's that Lord of the Rings game that we were talking yeah. about the, the first age, you know, where it's, oh, yeah. it's like, <laughs> not Gimli, not yeah. Gimli and not Aragorn are on this quest <laughs> with Gandalf because they got the right Barathor, to Gandalf. right? Yeah, yeah Barathor. Yeah. <laughs> I love Barathor. Yeah, it, 
it felt a little bit similar to that. So as interesting as some of those characters were, even, you know, on their own as as people, at the end of the day, the story that they're telling with those characters feels very similar. And this game, I think, is doing something very different. I think I think this game is going after some really fascinating ideas because you have some characters who are like trying to restore what the Jedi were, rebuilding the like Jedi archives and the Jedi temple, trying to train new Padawans, things like that. Like that's that's cool. and That's interesting. But Cal as a character is kind of taking a step back from that now that he's he considers himself to be a Jedi, but is asking himself like, okay, I'm making my way through the ruins of the High Republic. I know about the Old Republic. I know what happened when when the Republic fell. And now we have this empire like fascism is just rampant throughout the empire. And and alongside that, if you move into the Outer Rim, then it's just lawlessness. Then you just have like raider groups just like terrorizing people. So there's really like no good force in the world. And he's asking himself how he fits into that. And as I talked about last week, some of those questions come in the form of like, why even fight back when this battle seems impossible, which is, you know, just a classic underdog story. But on an even greater scale, what I didn't realize the game was about at that point, and and again, I'm not spoiling anything. This is just like a theme that is in the game. And I imagine if I went back and played it again, I would pick this up earlier now that I kind of know it more. Sure. But yeah. A lot of it also is Cal experiencing current history while also crawling through the ruins of the past and realizing that the Jedi have always been fucked up, right? Like that's a lot mm-hmm. of what the prequels are about is the fall of, of the Jedi Order, specifically coming from a place of like their emotional detachment and their hubris allows them to believe that there's no way the Sith could exist and there's no way that they could be overthrown and that this power strata that exists where the Jedi Order reigns almost supreme alongside things like the Republic, like there's no way that 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 natural order, quote unquote, of society could crumble or collapse in any way. Unless Senator Binks gives full absolute power to to, to (laughs) To sheave. Yeah, Yeah. that is why it all happens. Sorry, it's Attack of the Clones spoiler. Um, Excuse me. I think I think having a character who is a force wielder like ask himself that question and be like, there has to be something better is again something that the movies have tackled a little bit. I think The Last Jedi is a lot about that, and that's one of the sure, reasons I think yeah. that movie is so fascinating. Um, is asking those kinds of questions that have been like on the on the tips of tongues of people in forums for like years, like talking about Star Wars. Yeah, even even Empire Strikes Back, and I think this is just a natural yeah. sequel thing to do. Like I think if you're especially in a trilogy, like the middle and installment is always the sort of like weird we're unsure of ourselves yeah yeah uh mass effect 2 as well in empire strikes back i remember uh one scene that stands out to me amongst many it's a great movie uh is when luke is training in dagobah and then gets like a vision that leia's in trouble and han's in trouble and he's gonna go save them yes and Yoda and Obi-Wan are like, don't go. It's a trap. They're taking advantage of your emotions. The Jedi thing to do would be to stay on Dagobah and complete your training while your friends possibly die. Yes. They don't say that, but that's what they're implying. Yeah. And it's like, at what point do you deny like doing good in the world for the sake of remaining neutral or like mm-hmm. remaining to a code of ethics that maybe like at the point where you're ignoring your friends and family's cries for help? Like, are you a good person? That's always stood out to me. And it also makes me think of this is the nerdiest realization, but it made me think about how like in Dragon Ball Z, like you are at your most powerful when you're the most emotional because your friends are in trouble. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> is Goku a Sith? Like, is this is this what's all leading to? Yeah. I think I think one of the interesting things about about The Last Jedi as a movie has always been this idea that like the light and the darkness need to kind of 
coalesce and and make something sure. gray yeah. and more neutral that matches reality, you know, because the, this idea of just like there's a perfect good and a perfect evil isn't real. There needs to be some kind of in between. And this game is also tackling that same idea via Cal, which I think is really interesting. It's this is as it turns out, it's in the marketing material. So again, I'm not spoiling anything, but there there's a little bit of like a romantic plot line with Cal also where like oh, cool. he like falls in love with somebody and is like, is this allowed? Am I allowed to feel this? And is at a, as a certain point, it's just like. I, I need to give myself over to this because this is real and like ignoring it is only going to make me feel like shit and make everyone around me feel like shit and starting to grapple with the fact that if I am the last surviving Jedi, then I can make my own future. Like I, I can forge a better path for what we are if we're going to come back uh, as an idea. And I think that that's that's a really interesting like thematic and narrative ground yeah. to tackle. Um, I, I just found the story to be like great the further in I got. Um, but along, awesome. alongside that, Man, the the video game is good, dude. <laughs> like, like the, like the, there, there's more than I'm, this is not even a joke. There's more than one time while playing where I just yelled out loud, "This is a video game!" Like while play, like okay, I'm I'm sliding down a ravine and jump into the air and use my grapple and then you know double jump and dash through the air to grab onto a beam and then jump down and like shove a lightsaber through the top of a droid. That's a fucking video game. You know that yeah. that shit rips. Um, all of the like traversal stuff is really fun and really interesting. The way the way they're able to weave puzzles into what feel like natural environments is really strong. And I think it just kind of goes back to what I mentioned last week about how strong the map is in particular. Can Compared to the first one because there are a lot of cases i think i heard i think patrick klepek mentioned this on their episode of waypoint radio about it but there, there are a lot of cases where you will be in an environment and have no idea how to progress because the world is so rich and so detailed and feels so lived in. But if you open up your map, your map will just tell you straight up like, hey, man, you can climb on that wall if you want to. And then you back out of that. And maybe maybe you can see the like visual indication of that. But it's not just a case like in Uncharted where like things are painted yellow if you can climb them. It's a case where like you are near a big animal with big claws and that animal has clawed up the side of a wall a little bit. And that means that it's like rippable enough for you to, you know, do a kind of force jump off of it. So it feels a little bit more built into the environment. And if you ever really get stuck, you could just open up the map and the map will just tell you. And that's cool. Alongside that, obviously this is a game with like a billion and a half collectibles, not all of which I'm going to get, but like most of which I got, I like at the end of the game, I'm at like 90% or hundred percent completion in terms of collecting stuff on every planet, uh, which makes me think I'm way over the 30 hour mark. If I was to guess, yeah. um, I, I really got to look it up. Maybe, maybe in the next break I'll, I'll check. Sure. But I, I found it so rewarding like literally, but also just, you know, emotionally to find all the secrets in the game that I could, that I could stumble across. Um, it's like a Spider-Man. Like I found all the hidden objects, yeah. you know, cause they had a lot of narrative significance. Um, it was great. Yeah. And in the, uh, to be totally honest in this game, they don't give you a lot of narrative significance. Um, what they usually are is like <laughs> you open up a, you open up a box and like you see Cal's face with like, uh, the, the mustache and goatee combo from the princess bride. And it's like, Hey, you unlocked this. You can put this on your face now if you want. There's a lot of customization options which oh, I, you should have told me that for i would have gotten this day one if you could unlock beards that's amazing i can't i'm sorry i didn't tell you about it until now yeah that is like the main draw for me is just unlocking all the customization options um, most of my playtime in red dead 2 was growing the biggest mustache I could <laughs> like i because you can shave your beard and mustache however you want yeah, from each other right. and uh my mustache was like tier four length yeah evening mister this yeah. this game in the first game, you would just unlock new ponchos. 
uh, as like your way of dressing right. Cal in like di- yeah. like different colors essentially. Um, this game is like you're unlocking shirts and jackets to wear over those shirts and different pants and different uh, shoes and different hairstyles and lengths and different beards. Um, and on top of that, you're unlocking different pieces of your lightsaber. So like the grippy part is different than uh, the the switch that you use to turn it on. That's different from the emitter. That was in the first one too, right? Yeah. You could like customize your your lightsaber a little bit. Yeah. Th- yeah. This is on a totally different level because they also have you unlocking uh, the ability to change the materials that all of those pieces are made out of independently. Um, And on top of that, because this game gets into more interesting lightsaber styles, which I don't want to give away, but also I think are important to talk about. So I'm I'm kind of in this weird space. I just won't say what they are. But, you know, you start with the main three, which are like the single lightsaber. You have two lightsabers and then you also have the like the the dual blade, like the staff like Darth Maul has, um, which is how Cal ended the last game. In this game, you get two more on top of that, which are both like amazing. I really want to tell you about one of them, but I can't. It's just like, ugh. anyway, what I'll say about it is that the last one that you get just turns the game into Dark Souls if you want it to be <laughs> like if you're already really engaging and interested in the Dark Souls side of the combat in this game. Is it a sword and shields combo? I, w- I will not tell you. OK, uh, fine. it just it just feels a lot like Dark Souls if you if cool. you use that weapon, which is what I ended up doing for most of the game as soon as I unlocked it, which was really fun. But you can unlock all of these different customization components for all of that. And then a lot of the different collectibles that you're getting, um, like little shards of like a, a rare earth material or, you know, data discs that contain information about the high Republic or scrolls on Jeddah about the, the like beginning of the Jedi order. All of this stuff gets kind of like decrypted and then boiled down into again, even more customization options you can unlock, which all is really fun and very cool uh, and can take you into new game plus, which comes with an amazing, option if you get into new game plus which is every time you die cal respawns with an entirely random selection of all the customization options you've unlocked <laughs> which i am obsessed with i haven't done this oh, yet but just man. as an idea i'm like brilliant Wh- whoever came up with that g ge- like genius shit to do that yeah. immediately president yeah, yeah. i um <laughs> I mean, I was excited to play after last week, but you've really, so I, I, my thing is like, I would have gone already, but Zelda's coming out so soon. So my plan currently is to wait until like the summer, maybe early fall. It's a summer game. Definitely. Yeah. yeah, Definitely before the year is over. But like you, you're like, don't wait until like three weeks before Goaty. Like, don't do that. Like, that's the big thing for me is I I didn't realize how invested I was going to get in the side stuff. And I think the side stuff is what you're going to really connect to. Like, I think the main plot is great. And I think the characters are great. And you in particular are going to really love some of the characters. But the hanging out on Kobo and talking to like, you know, walking by a prospector who's leaning against, you know, a little like lean to shack and being like jedi come over here and tell tells you like that there are some jawa in the forest uh and that there's also like a big evil creature that might be lurking in that same area that's cool shit like that's uh, (laughs) as soon as i hear that stuff i immediately divert all my plans i kept telling myself i'm just going to continue progressing the main story because i wasn't sure i was gonna be able to finish the game in time for this episode but kept running into situations where people would be like check this out and i would i would immediately drop everything i was doing to go check it out because it sounded interesting yeah Um, it sounds awesome it also kind of i mean this is obviously a big game and there's a lot to do but it kind of sounds like what we were talking about in the last section is like a platonic ideal of like a blockbuster game you know where it's like totally it is seemingly like i'm sure it's pretty big but it's like it's very dense it's not just trying to be like you can go to any planet you want it's like here are like very authored and and like set areas that we know you're going to enjoy yeah i think there's like six locations total and two of them i would 
consider to just be so small that they're not even really worth considering locations. They're just like set piece moments in a ways. Yeah, it's it's the bigger planets. You know, Kobo, as I mentioned, is gigantic. But when you go to Jeddah, Jeddah is also like reasonably large and has a lot of secret shit to uncover and a lot of like traversal puzzles and stuff. That's another thing. There's this uh, one mechanic in the game called Force Tears, which are these kind of like Honestly, what they really are is the uh, Super Mario Sunshine platforming levels that you'd like to zip into. It's like very much that. And every once in a while, they'll be just like, hey, fight 150 battle droids without dying. And every once in a while, they are just Celeste levels, but in 3D space. Um, And they are brutally difficult. They are so hard. I've done all of them at this point, which took me (laughs) forever, Uh, especially some of the more difficult combat ones are like just horrible. Um, But I think the fact that this team looked at the platforming that they had created, like the, the, the game feel of actually moving and traversing through the space and told themselves like, not only does it, is this fun and feels good, but it can support just like puzzle solving and speed running based on a platforming perspective. And like this game can support that also if it wants to be, and then investing the time and effort it takes to create like really cool, really difficult test of skill style jungle gyms for you to, Uh, jump around just speaks to like how confident this team has gotten in existing in the world of of Cal Kestis which I think is really fun and and really gets me even more excited about whatever the third one ends up being yeah is it going to be a trilogy is that the plan I I have no idea I'm guessing it is I you know it's Star Wars so like a trilogy feels like the safest (laughs) bet Um, and it's definitely setting up for another one after this one at least but it's just as much as I liked the first one it's in Jedi Survivor that I felt myself frequently being like, oh yeah, this is the team that made Titanfall 2. Like there are there are <laughs> oh, so yeah. many huge, like iconic set piece moments in this game that are so fun and cool that are completely like removed from anything that was going on in Titanfall 2. You know, these these moments are like these big uncharted sequences. But then it's also the bits where I'm, you know, like I mentioned earlier, wall running jumping while running jumping using the force to pull a rope towards me so i can jump off and then you know like pull out my dual blades and then fight off six guys at once before i go do it all again those moments i'm like you know put this in first person and give me a gun or a mech and suddenly it's titanfall and that's exciting like for all the people who are like man i wish they'd make a titanfall 3 go play jedi survivor i think you're gonna find weirdly that it's scratching that same itch that you wanted there and and as we talked about in our titanfall 2 bonus that is like maybe the best first person shooter campaign like of all time in terms of (laughs) not only just being like you know it has great gunplay obviously titanfall 2 is is known for that but on top of that incredible storytelling and the traversal and puzzle solving stuff is so interesting and the locations that come up with are so cool in that game um and it feels like that team asked themselves how to put that in the world of star wars and like made it work this time Whereas in the first one, there was a little bit more unevenness in terms of their ability to execute on that. And two, they like really got it. And if that's the team that's going into making hopefully a third one, I'm like exhilarated by that prospect. That's so exciting. Yeah, I'm I'm I cannot wait to check it out. Your your excitement is contagious. We only talk about games we like on this show, but like it's special when it's like I can I can sense you're like overflowing with love for this game. Yeah, there's a lot Uh, I can't say, which is really bumming me out. But um, I, I will say, uh. The further into the game you get, the more on board you'll be with it, um, which is definitely 
definitely something I was feeling. And then I saw some other people in the discord mention that also. And then I was talking to a friend of the show, Brendan Klinkenberg about it uh, the other day. And he said the same thing. He was like, cause I, he, he was at the same point that I was at where he was just like really stuck on Kobo doing all the side content. And I was like, I implore you to just like leave and go do a couple more missions, get like two or three more abilities, then come back to Kobo and see how much more you can access there. Cause the more stuff you do out in the world, the more stuff you could do on Kobo as well. Um, yeah. And as soon as he started doing that, he texted me and was just like, I'm, I'm now, now at your level of enthusiasm for this game he was a little bit iffy on <laughs> oh, it and now yeah, well, he's like oh i get it which i i'll do I the get. same thing then i'll try not to get too stuck on Kobo. i think the thing is i think the game is built for you to like exert that curiosity if you want to and i don't regret the you know 10 plus hours i spent on kobo in the beginning of the game um before moving on because i think it's like I think that's all part of the experience. So I think like, you know, let your whims take you where, where they will. But at the end of the day, yeah. it's it's like all great open world game design or just kind of the ideal for these kinds of games where at any moment, if you're like, I'm bored of running around this same planet, guess what? You can go to another one and go do like a cool, big, bombastic, uncharted mission, you know, and then come back to Kobo later and plant some more seeds in the garden. <laughs> Hell yeah. Or play uh, play hollow tactics. <laughs> Um, yeah, once I'm fully uh, hung over from Zelda, I will absolutely <laughs> join Cal on his journey. Yeah, I think you'll have a good time. Also, the game opens with um, a little like abridged cutscene that explains everything that happened in the first game. So you should be fine on that front also. Oh, cool. I'm going to say it happens in the prequels. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, though, we've thrown a lot of shade on the prequels. I do love Coruscant as a place. It's amazing. Not necessarily for the time I spent there. I feel like the a lot of the Senate scenes feel like a accidental parody of Star Trek. Yeah. But like the actual like having a planet be like, here's like the capital. And, and it's just a really I, I've always loved it visually. Yeah. The whole planet as a city is really cool. And yeah. then also there there's a thing that doesn't go remarked uh, upon as much in the prequels, but is definitely a thing that's getting touched on a lot more in some of the side content, specifically in Andor. They really tackle this, which I think is cool. But it also happens like literally the opening of Jedi Survivor is Cal uh, has been arrested and is being brought to the senator of Coruscant. Um, and they're told to meet in like the undercity part. Like whenever you're watching the prequels, what you're seeing is like the top level richest people on Coruscant. But there's this whole like seedy underbelly beneath that. It is very Midgar. Um, even when you're walking around, you can look up and you can see the like plate that's holding the top part of Coruscant together, which I think is just a really fun place to explore. There was a game that was being, um, that was in development for a long time, uh, by some of the people behind Uncharted who had left Naughty Dog and had moved on and started their own company. Um, and they were working on a game that I think was called Star Wars 1313, which was specifically oh, you, yeah. you playing as a bounty hunter in like an Uncharted-esque version of the Undercity in Coruscant. It sounded like a really cool idea. And I, I just, I had this like big beaming grin on my face when the game opened and you could see Cal going by uh, what used to be the Jedi Temple and it's all decked out and like kind of Empire signs um, and flags and stuff like indicating like, hey, that's where Sheev is hanging out. Um, but <laughs> slowly this dropship starts like descending into Coruscant further and further and further and further down into like the shittier part of it. And I, I was just like, oh, I'm glad I'm finally getting to see this space in a video game because I was so excited about 1313 as an idea. Um, yeah, we're hearing a lot about that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that got canceled. I think that team is now Skydance Studios, which is that film company. But I think they're now also making games and I think they're working on something. I don't know what. Oh, cool. Yeah. Hell yeah. Anyway, 
All right, Cal, thanks for your time. Uh, you want to take another break and move on to our 8,000 more games for this episode? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I think, should we mention, like, initially this was going to be two episodes, as, as we as we mentioned, but our solve for this has just been to talk about every game that we we're going to talk about over two episodes in this one. So this one is just <laughs> going to be really long. Uh, Sorry. I can feel myself losing my voice, and I, I don't care. Going to push through. <laughs> it's going to turn into dust by the end of the episode. <laughs> Fire Emblem 3. <laughs> This is blowing the wind. <laughs> All right. See you soon. <laughs> Why is that funny? See you. I don't know. Hello. Are we back? Sure. Hey. <laughs> that was surreal. We have a bunch of mobile games to talk about. Yeah. I'll kick us off because I know you you uh, almost lost your voice there. Praising. <laughs> Thanks. I'll, I'll take a sip of water. Uh, I'm pretty early on still, but I wanted to bring it up because I think it's awesome. It's Leia's Horizon. Uh, it is made by Snowman, who are the team that made Altos Adventure and Altos Odyssey. Big Altos fans over here in the area. Yeah, I love the Alto games. And I was really yeah. excited to see that they're working on something new. This is recommended uh, by our friend Dom, a friend of the show. Um, and it's also another... <laughs> I didn't even mention this to you, but he texted the two of us and was like, hey, you should check this game out. As that was happening, I was walking down the street and looking at my phone and I turned to my left and Dom was sitting across the street <laughs> from me. Uh, we, yeah, our, our thread is called Zance Chat Room. So whenever I get yeah. it, I'm always like, kind of nervous when he texts us. But yeah. in this case, it was good. And this is also a, yet another Netflix game. So if you have Netflix... You can just get this for free. And it's pretty, basically what you'll do, the the onboarding process, you'll download the app on your phone, and then when you open the game, it will prompt you to log into Netflix, and then you just have it. Very easy. I feel like it was like more indirect before, but they figured out a way to make it make sense. Mm, yeah. So if you don't know, Alto's Adventure and Alto's Odyssey are basically side-scrolling platformers, but you're basically going downhill on a ski or, or snowboard style thing, and... If you tap the screen, you'll jump. And if you hold, you'll like spin in a circle. And as the level just kind of continues automatically, there are like collectibles to get. There are like tricks you can do. Um, it's re it's like the most Zen version of Tony Hawk you can imagine. Yeah. Um, this they're really good at making thunderstorms cozy. That's like what I think of when I play <laughs> any Alto game. Yeah. But you can also unlock different characters that have slightly different abilities. Uh, like some will will jump higher but move slower stuff like that yeah and in leia's horizon the whole idea is that you are now in a 3d space and you are flying and you know basically more of an open world design you can fly around in any direction and the game opens in kind of like a very breath of the wild kind of town this is my one exception i've, I've clowned on games that that the main thing they pull from breath of the wild is the hand glider in this case making the hand glider the entire game makes sense like yeah. if you're gonna have the hand glider commit to it don't just throw it in for no reason it almost feels like um maybe at the beginning of development or something they asked themselves like how do we make a video game out of like the flying squirrel wingsuits that people wear yeah, yeah. sometimes and um you know turned into a glider over the, over the course of development but it's it's very cool there was obviously already an interest in like momentum and in like you know i think moving to flying after making two games about like you know skiing down steep hills makes sense yeah i think they also made a skateboarding game in in the interim oh, as well for apple arcade yeah that's cool but yeah so in leia's horizon it begins it's it's breath of the wild in the sense that characters will go like hey you know yeah. in like the, that zelda kind of way yeah but fairly lengthy tutorial um and it helps because the controls take a little bit of getting used to they're really good but there's there's more 
going on than just tapping the screen. So yeah. basically like it begins and you're in the clouds and you basically have to hold the phone sideways and two thumbs on the screen. Like if you want to turn, you have to slide one thumb down and one thumb up. So like Leia's arms will like one will go down, one will go up and she'll turn. Mm -hmm. um, that's for a sharp turn. If you just want to turn, you can lift one arm up. Uh, and then if you like push both thumbs up, you'll dive down and get a lot of speed. If you squeeze them together, you'll like zoom forward using a boost. And if you spread them apart, you'll do like a parachute to kind of come to a sudden stop and like glide down. It's really fun. They really nailed the controls. Like again, there's a lot of moving parts, but once you kind of get a handle on it, it's just really fun to fly around. The design of levels though, now there's like an open world where you can fly to various points and be given quests. Yeah. My one complaint is that I think there's a little bit too much on screen. I think I guess I'm used to Alto's Odyssey where it's like so clean and open that like when I'm flying around, it kind of takes me out of it when I'm seeing like eight different quest markers and like uh, words describing how I'm flying. It's not a deal breaker, but I kind of I almost preferred the approach in the tutorial where you're just in the clouds and that's all you can see. Mm -hmm. But even still, I feel like it's a really it's like um, it, it reminds me a lot of the N64 game Pilot Wings. It yeah. was very much like a tech demo, but there was something really <laughs> zen and kind of charming about just like the modes of the game that let you fly around and enjoy this 3D space. And I think that's what this game really succeeds at. I appreciate that there are quests and there are goals and there are ways to unlock more capes and more charms that kind of give you different bonuses. But I think they've just really succeeded at making it feel good to fly around and exist in this space. And that's like... I think the main objective in a game like this. So I would highly recommend it. If you have Netflix, there's no reason not to get it. I think it's kind of a game I could recommend to anybody. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you that it feels a little bit like too much is happening on screen. Yeah. It feels really dense. And this is again, coming from uh, two people who played a lot of Honkai Star Rail recently. <laughs> um, yeah. Which is just menus on menus. Yeah. yeah. But I, I did find myself wishing that this game was like on the switch. Uh, it's funny. I, mm. So as I mentioned, I went and sat down with Dom, like just because I looked to my left and there he was sitting there as soon as he texted us about this game. But I was just like, hey, how do you feel about playing this game on your phone? And he was like, oh, you know, I think it's fine. I, I was just like, I just I just really wish it was on even like the switches size screen. Like, I guess I could download it on my iPad, play it there. I could hypothetically do that. But I feel like that control scheme maybe won't work as well on an iPad. I might be wrong about that. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, I mean, it probably probably does but it's just you'll be wider apart yeah but at the end of the day my feeling about it was just like this art is so beautiful that i want to see it in it's like beautiful 1080p glory you know or like it's 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 4k glory and uh i don't know maybe we'll get there one day i think that'd be really nice yeah this would have been like the best wii game i feel like if yeah. there was a way to like you know move it with the controller and unchuck yeah yeah and i think that's the other thing i want to bring up i just i'm amazed at how great the controls feel like yeah. as you mentioned it definitely takes some getting used to early on but that intuitive feeling of once you get in the air and start playing a little bit past the tutorial you don't even really have to think about it at all as you're moving your thumbs around the screen it just it just feels amazing uh it, it's just one of those situations where like they they nailed that so hard that it almost doesn't even matter what you're doing in the game but also what you're doing in the game is fun enough that 
like, oh, great. It's just, you got everything right. <laughs> it's just, yeah. just really <laughs> impressive. You know, it feels like Alto's Odyssey again in that way where it's like Alto's Odyssey, you get to a certain point where you've really locked into a run. Like I remember this happening a lot while I would take the subway to work. I would just get locked into a run in Alto's, uh, both of them, and uh, just get to this point where I'm, I'm not thinking at all. I'm like totally zoned out and getting like the highest score I've ever gotten in my life uh, playing that game. But uh, for the most part, it's just a completely like subconscious feeling of playing altos. And, and at a certain point, you do get there with Leia's Horizon. Like you, you do you do hit that same level of, of intuition, which I think is just, you know, a, a testament to how how strong this team is in terms of making gameplay features that feel like this. Yeah, it's really impressive. They also they treat failure in kind of a funny way. Like in altos, it's like this beautiful it reminds me a lot of journey like the the score and like the you know open desert area and like you're so caught up in the whimsy then it's like and then then it's like you know oh make sure you avoid rocks but it's like i think it's a kind of a joke of the game and you you do need like a threat that makes those runs feel tremendous yeah like if, if there wasn't a way to get obstructed it wouldn't feel earned and Elias horizon i think you know is similar if you like dip or fall it's like It'll give you a hint. It also shows you after each run, like where in the world you went, which I think is really helpful. Yeah, I love that. It kind of encourages you to like maybe go somewhere else next time, or if you do want to try again, you know exactly where to go. So yeah, it's it's a really really cool game. I would I would recommend it. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna talk about some more mobile games if you don't mind, cool. Stephen. I'm gonna bring up uh, two that I played on Apple Arcade recently. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I'm just gonna shout this out. There are some kids outside, like absolutely losing their minds. If that gets picked up in the mic, there's nothing we could do about it. But they probably got a five star character. They're having fun. They probably got yeah. a five star character. Yeah, I think that's yeah. probably what happened. They got that one that sips tea and shoots people with the Gears of War laser. <laughs> 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 yeah, she's pretty cool. Anyway, I I picked up two games on Apple Arcade recently that were just fascinating to me because, I, I mean, they came out of nowhere. I had no idea they were ha- happening. One of them was one that I saw on my Twitter timeline, which was What the Car, which is by the team that made What the Golf. And if you don't oh, know yeah. What the Golf, it's an amazing game. You and I talked about it when Apple Arcade first came out. It was like one of the launch games on Apple Arcade. The, the idea essentially is that it's like a comedy golf game. So it's a level-based game where you will be a guy sitting there with a golf club and you have to like you know, pull back and swing and hit a golf club and try and get the ball in a hole. You know, very classic golf game scenario. Uh, In the second level, though, it's inverted where instead of uh, throwing, you know, kind of like pulling the screen back and then hitting the golf ball, you pull the screen back and suddenly the, the guy and the golf club go flying and you need to get the guy into the hole instead of the golf ball. And they will just throughout the course of that game, continue to invert your expectation and add more and more and more wild gameplay elements onto it. There's a certain point where it becomes like a side-scrolling platformer. Like they just explore every possible avenue that they can with that game. Um, and and it never stops being funny. Either. And, like, yeah, it's, it's hilarious. And, and there are points, and this is what I find interesting about what the car, there are points, not many, but there are points where you play as like a car in that game where uh, you kind of like pull back and then launch yourself forward as a car and you need to like just keep like pulling back and launching yourself forward and forward and forward to like drive around a course. What the car is a game where you are a car with legs who is always running. <laughs> um, and what I love. Sold. Yeah. What I love about it is that you aren't 
you aren't given the same with the golf mechanic of like pulling back and going forward. This instead is an auto runner, kind of like a temple run scenario, but every single level, there's something weird going on with the car. So like maybe the car will have like 50 legs instead of two, or maybe the two legs will be really small, but you have a jetpack. So now if you hit the ignition button, like you just kind of like launch yourself into the air a little bit and then like slam on the ground and you need to like use a steering wheel on the left with your left thumb. And then you have this ignition button on the right um, to like go, you know, it's like, it's like your gas pedal and the ways in which I've already seen them explore those ideas and and completely subverted over and over and over again have been, again, just hilarious. And what I love is every single level starts off with you pressing a button, which is essentially lighting the fuse of a cannon. And whenever you do that, out of the cannon comes your car and you never know what's going to come out. Like it's, <laughs> it's your car, but your car will have, you know, legs that are gigantic or your car will come out and the car will be on top of a soccer ball uh, and you need to like roll around like it's a super monkey ball thing. The game is incredible. So the the, the first section is like mainly just racing and I'm in the second world right now, which is sports and like everything is just sports related. Um, so I just, I just did one where I was a car driving on top of a soccer net with wheels. And what you need to do is uh, there's this little kid running around with a soccer ball and you need to drive into that kid and get the ball into the net underneath your car to win. Uh, so you're just like playing soccer, but you're the net. Amazing. Um, yeah, that's what the car it's out now on, on Apple Arcade, uh, which means you can play it on your phone or your iPad or your Apple TV or your Mac. If you have any of those, um, it has controller support and it's cool stuff. Uh, I like it a lot. The other game that I want to talk about because I can't believe it exists. Um, <laughs> even more so than what the car for some reason is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Splintered Fate, which is a game that I probably would have had no interest in if it were not for Kyle Starr, again, friend of the show, who tweeted something to the effect of this is just Hades. And I was like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> OK, excuse me. Yeah, you yeah. piqued my interest. Um, I think we're far enough away from Hades now where I think it kind of makes sense to start seeing some games that are taking the design inspiration of Hades and like sure. putting that in their games. Um, yeah, somehow it's been almost three years, which is crazy. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, so it kind of makes sense that like a maybe not smaller scale. It might not be the way to put it, but like a, I'll say it anyway, a smaller scale mobile game like this could come out and have like big Hades inspiration. But it really just feels like it's Hades for kids and on your phone. Um, I've been playing it with a controller, which has been amazing. Uh, I, ha I have the backbone one, which works great with the iPhone. But essentially, you just pick one of the four Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and you go out on runs and you're uh, each of the turtles has different like starter abilities. Uh, so I've been playing as Donatello a lot, who uh, is purple. This is my favorite color. Um, so Donatello's whole deal is that he's like the he's, he's your turtle. If I had to like yeah. astrologically, definitely Donatello. Yeah, I don't really know anything about these characters. Well, that's actually one of the things I want to bring up about this game is that I feel like I am learning more about these characters through this game than I ever have through any other Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles <laughs> media because the writing is also like it's a little bit, you know, it's more for kids. Definitely. This is very much like a Hades for kids, but I feel like the characterization is so on point and the writing is good enough that I'm like learning a lot more about turtles lore than I ever have in my life. But anyway, uh, Donatello's whole deal is you have, you know, this big staff and you can use your like special move, which is uh, just kind of like spinning the staff around. It's kind of like an area of effect thing. And then you have a dash, which allows you to dash around like in Hades. And over the course of the game or each run, you will continue to get just like in Hades, more and more interesting augmentations onto your different moves. Um, some of which will even just like replace things entirely. So you can like replace that kind of area of effect spin 
move with something that is either like more destructive or maybe more passively helpful to you. Um, you can do things like charging up your moves with different elemental attacks, just like in Hades as well. It's one of those cases where I, I don't even really mind how much they've just like taken straight from Hades because it fits so well into the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles of it all that it feels really fun. I have found myself having like really, really, really successful runs. And some of them actually are very difficult. Like this game does get really hard at times, or sometimes you just don't get the items you need to progress, which to me speaks to like, they made a good roguelike. And I think that's, yeah. that's kind of the most surprising <laughs> thing for me is like, at the end of the day, this game is like a really successful Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles roguelike that it's, I'm playing on my phone you know, with a controller, but the first time I played it was on the subway without a controller. And I still had a great time on my first run through the game. Um, I made it like past the first boss and just, it was like generally very cool. I'm just really surprised by this game. And, and the reason I want to bring this game up is because again, I'm watching that Psychonauts documentary. And one of the things that has come up more than once on this, on, on this documentary, uh, which is about the making of Psychonauts two, is that Tim Schaefer, who's the head of the studio keeps mentioning this other game that they're working on at the studio called rad. Do you know about, do you know about rad? No, I know nothing. Me either. I had no idea what it was. And, and at double fine, they, use uh code names for all their games all, all the games have code names and i just assumed that rad was a code name until i you know told myself like oh yeah this documentary i'm watch i'm watching like these episodes take place in 2018 i wonder if this game ever came out what it was called and i looked it up and no it's just called rad it's a game that double fine made that came out in 2018 i think it's called rad and it's a roguelike it's it, like double fine made a roguelike oh wow i had never heard of it me either and it's on switch and it's on it's on everything what? yeah so, you know, kind of inspired by the fun that I was having with uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I was like, I got to know what Double Fine's roguelike is um, and downloaded it and started playing that. Man, that game is weird and cool. And I can't believe it like totally flew under the radar. It might have been 2019. Actually, now I think about it, it might have been the same year as Hades. That explains why no one talked about it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was August 2019. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, God, that was exactly that like month, right? Well, no, uh, Hades is actually 2020. Oh, was it? Hades oh. was like September 2020. So this actually came out a year before, but regardless. Anyway, I started playing Rad and Rad uh, is like a very kind of 80s, uh, like a, an 80s inspired kind of like VHS vibe uh, roguelike where you play as a bunch of kids who are in the second post-apocalypse. So the apocalypse happened, humanity came back, and then the apocalypse happened a second time. And the world is like completely ravaged by like nuclear fallout. And the kids who like are trying to save the world in this game are not only like immune to the radiation, but they like feed off of it and become empowered by it. And you run around, it's isometric. It again feels like Hades or like Splintered Fate. Um, it has this kind of like isometric uh, randomly generated level design. A bunch of enemies show up. You can just like whack them with whatever weapon you happen to be holding. But if you kill enough of the enemies, you get radiated enough that you just like mutate into something different and you continue to gain these new mutations over and over again. So like there are somewhere like you, the bottom half of you turns into like giant crab legs uh, and you can like, you know, pick up and throw things or uh, you can get like a little guy who will like a little version of you who will spawn out of your back and has a gun who is like constantly <laughs> shooting whatever enemy is closest to you. I had another one that was an, again, like you would you would uh, lay an egg that was a little version of you that also had a bat and would like run around and just like whack enemies and they had like no health but you know they could like at least do a little bit of damage it's it's really fun i find it a little bit hard to like read visually i think i think the arts yeah. like the 80s art style like clashes with itself sometimes but the thing that i'm finding really fun about rad is like it's super fucking hard and i i, I don't know if that was the intention or not and i haven't read any reviews i haven't really seen anything about it because i hadn't heard about this game at all but i I've, I've just found this game to be 
deeply challenging. I've not beaten the first boss yet somehow. Uh, and I, I've done like probably five or six runs. Um, and I kind of feel like I, I have my feet under me, but maybe I'm just getting the wrong mutations or something. But I just think that that idea, it feels a little bit binding of Isaac in that way, where every single run you have like a, a completely different wild mutation that can totally affect the course of your game. I do think that they tuned the game to the point where I just need to get good at it uh, before I before I keep getting forward or before I keep moving forwards. But um, I've just been having a really good time with both that and Splintered Fate. Um, and it was just funny to be like watching the Psychonauts documentary while playing like doing a run of splintered fate, hearing them talk about rad being like, I wonder what this is looking it up, finding out it's another roguelike and being like, <laughs> okay, I'm going to pause this documentary and see what this game is. Uh, and putting splintered fate down to play rad. Um, which again, you know, DMNT to me feels like it's pulling from, or maybe is the inspiration for what rad is. Oh yeah. I mean, it's literally teenage mutants. Yeah, yeah. totally. Really bizarre. But anyway, um, what the car and splintered fate, both fantastic, both out now. Um, I'm hoping that splintered fate like makes it off of Apple arcade eventually. Cause I would love for more people to play it. I think it's really fun and really cool. Yeah. It sounds awesome. Um, right, can you play as anyone else or is it just the four turtles currently? As far as I know, it's just the four turtles. I have run into a fifth turtle that I didn't know existed in the lore. Um, <laughs> but, but there's a, fifth turtle that i saved from a boss early on and i'm hoping that they show up as playable eventually but all in all very very cool video game yeah i like it a lot i i I will say if you are checking it out um give it at least like one or two runs past the tutorial i don't think the tutorial is very fun but as soon as you like start to lock into what the game is actually trying to do amazing really takes off really takes off cool that sounds awesome well i got some uh, apple arcade games to download very soon yeah there's been a lot recently. I don't know. Like they didn't do a big announcement like they did the last time they released a lot of games, but I feel like they've released a lot of games recently. There's another one that I've been playing, which is like a, a Disney version of um, Words with Friends that is specifically single player. Uh, it, it There is a multiplayer element if you want to play it, but it's like just kind of uh, competing against somebody uh, with Words with Friends which is uh, honestly really fun. I'm having a good time with that too. I don't know. They just released like five or six games all at once last week. Uh, yeah, I feel like the, the Apple Arcade schedule seems to be like every year and a half, they release like 40 games all at once. Yeah. And then like silence for years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad we're on another uh, point of good games. It's kind of amazing what's on there at this point also in terms of like the other games that they're just like pulling from elsewhere like getting over it with Bennett Foddy is on Apple Arcade now you can just get that I wonder if they saw Netflix's competition I imagine they did right I imagine yeah I I have to I have to assume increasingly they're definitely feeling that way Um, and that's maybe why games like getting over it with Bennett Foddy are on Apple Arcade because that feels like the exact kind of thing that Netflix would have done also yeah right exactly Uh, because that seems to be Netflix's bag it's like okay what indie game was great three years ago how do we get that on mobile you know (laughs) Which is a great strategy, to be clear. That sounds like such a very specific insult. I know you didn't mean it that way, but it's like, this person's whole vibe is what was cool three years ago. Yeah. Uh, no, but you're, you're right. It's right? Truly, I mean, it's working, though. Yeah. Like, It's also all games we love. Yeah. Yeah, getting into the breach on mobile via Netflix was like fucking brilliant. Like, everyone wanted oh, the mobile yeah. version of that game. Why, why wasn't that there? And now here it is. Yeah. It's amazing. So cool. And is Kentucky Route Zero also there, too? Yeah. It's amazing. And Immortality. Immortality. Yeah. And uh, Layers Horizon, another one. That's a new game, so that's an exception. Anyway, why don't we take another break? We're, I think, halfway through this long episode. (laughs) Uh, We're a little bit over halfway, I think. I like forgot. I just assume we were doing this forever now. It's like, this is just my life now, I guess. I don't know. You want to throw another segment in here? We can talk about Dreamcast. <laughs> I really don't. I actually, I really, I, I'm having a good time, but I'm also very hungry and I have like actual plans later. So <laughs> okay. I do, I do want to keep it somewhat short. I will not have a voice if we add another segment to this. <laughs> yes. That's also what I'm thinking. This 
this is the most like we've like f- fallen apart in real time. <laughs> turning, an episode, turning into Alex Mack metallic goo. <laughs> it's because we couldn't stop talking about Honkai Star Rail. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can't talk about that game unless you give part of yourself away. That's uh, another monetization. Anyway, yeah, take a break. And uh, I'm very excited for the next section. I have uh, two games that I've talked about already, but we're also kind of revisiting. Yeah. So see you soon. Bye bye. Brendan, two very important things happened since we last recorded. <laughs> what did you eat? I had a Beyond Burger, which was great. Whoa. Hell yeah. I was vegetarian for a very long time, for like six years. Yeah. And then I veered towards pescatarian. And now I just don't eat red meat, mm. which I don't really miss. I, I, I kind of figured like, why have it if I don't want it? And it's going to, in a small way, help the environment to not eat it. Yeah. But I also just like Beyond Burgers. So I had one. It was really good. But you, you were like... After I complained about my hunger on our show, you're like, go eat something. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. But I also remembered once I had a clear head after a nice meal, I... Uh, <laughs> I already know where this is going and... <laughs> okay, okay, this is good. Yes. Uh, I remembered that I forgot to mention... I, we have yet another segment. I clowned on you moments ago saying <laughs> no more segments. And I, I here's a surprise segment. Yeah. I played this Street Fighter Six demo. <laughs> yeah. And I want to share that experience. So there's a demo out. Very exciting. There are three modes. Actually, only two modes you can play. Yeah. One is like you can play either against the computer or online with a friend one on one. Actually, I don't know if you can play online, but I did like a I joined a friend's session and we were able to play that way. So you can play the game, but you can only play as Ryu and Luke, the new guy who they're really going all in on. And I don't know why I'm like, why is Luke Mm. the I don't mind Luke. He kind of reminds me of Steve from Stranger Things, but like roided out, which yeah. is kind of an interesting dynamic. But uh, the whole cast seems to be like you have the established Street Fighter favorites like Ryu and Chun-Li who are now like the mentors to the new generation of fighters, which right. is cool. I like that. Yeah. You can only play as Ryu and Luke. I kind of wish it was like Ryu and Chun-Li or like because Luke kind of has a pretty similar moveset to mm-hmm. Ryu. Right. Playing the game, it looks great and it is really fun. So I guess to touch on like what the game is doing, it feels in all ways like a hybrid between Third Strike, my personal favorite, and Street Fighter 4, um, which is like the last one I got really into. I guess probably a little bit of 5 too, but it feels like just in spirit and in the character design, kind of like a halfway point between the style of Third Strike and the style of Four. Yeah. And the game itself, uh, pretty standard. There, you know, a lot of these characters have the same moveset from, you know, two decades ago. <laughs> Nothing radically new. There's a super meter on the bottom. Every character has three different supers. I kind of like how there's like a light super, a medium super, and a heavy super that kind of parallels the like light, heavy, and medium attacks. And there's also a drive meter. And there's also a parry, which uh, I don't know if I've had a parry, but the parry mechanic was a big deal in Third Strike. That's kind of why that game has lived on and people still play it Mm. because the skill ceiling for the parry is like ridiculous. One one of the most famous fighting game clips is a is a match where someone parried every kick in Chun-Li's super, which is truly like blink and you'll miss it speed kicks like, i didn't even know that was possible <laughs> that's amazing until i saw that clip that's so cool yeah so in this they, they kind of limit the parry to a drive meter i believe and they also have the thing in four where like you can kind of do a charge up attack that will take a hit and then kind of respond so there's a lot going on and honestly i think for someone new to street fighter new to fighting games 
it could be overwhelming. Like it's honestly even more stuff going on than in Guilty Gear Strive, which is saying a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but what they do that I think is a really great addition is you can choose one of there's actually there's three and you can adjust them from there, but two basic control schemes. One is just these characters will play like they always have to do a Hadouken. It's down forward punch. Um, you can also play with modern controls, which like really reduce the button input. So it's like much simpler to do combos and to pull off moves, but with a little bit less player freedom on like what you're doing, which I think is a really great way to like give a whole play like a play style for people that are new to the game or that just sort of want to experiment with a new character before they kind of get in the weeds with it. It's sort of like from my limited time messing around in like game engines, there there are like drag and drop features in a lot of game engines where you can kind of like use pre-made assets to like kind of mess around and learn ideas and make something. And then you can also learn code and and know how to do it like from scratch. Yeah. Um, and to me, it's like kind of a similar idea where it's like, it's going to be harder to learn with the standard controls, but you're going to be able to do more. But if you want kind of like a bridge between the two, I think the new control scheme is a really great addition. So I, I really like that. Mm. I also, there's a, this sounded silly at first, but it totally won me over. There is an option to put on commentators. So there'll be like esports announcers that will comment on your match just dynamically. And it's honestly like one, it makes the match feel really intense. And because you don't want to be embarrassed, be like, what is player two doing? You know, which yeah. happened to me all the time. Um, but like, they also kind of, will mention like offhandedly concepts and strategies that it's not a bad way to like, I could see someone new to the game going into a practice mode or just going to a match and put the commentators on and like actually learn the character. Um, so like, it seems like kind of a silly thing and I don't know how deep it goes, but I was really impressed with like what it added to the match. So I'm just like really excited for the actual game itself. I think it's, I was already excited, but getting to play a little bit of it, I kind of have full confidence in how it will be as a fighting game. There's also a mode where you can make your own character and you study under Luke as his like Street Fighter pupil. And there's like a open world, almost like a Yakuza game where you can kind of just walk around, challenge people to fights. And it is absurd and I don't think is going to be very good. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't. I, it can go wildly either way. Like, first of all, the character creator is like truly so powerful. It might be from hell. Like, I think that the, the character you can create, the freedom they give you, it feels like a hacked version of The Sims where there's no limit <laughs> and you can just, you know, you do whatever you want. This is this is where I want to jump in because you you told me about the commentator thing and I was like, wow, that sounds amazing. I'm really interested. in Yeah, that. yeah. So I downloaded this on my Xbox uh, and I, I'll be honest, I've had like a pretty harrowing medical week and a lot of my time recently has uh, or the past couple of days has just been spent like on the couch or in bed, which is how I beat Jedi Survivor. <laughs> um, but yeah, last night before I went to bed, I was like, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to play Street Fighter six. I'm going I'm going to get into it. And it was like 11 ish PM. And I started up the game. I saw the two game modes and one of them was like, jump online, play as Ryu and Luke. 
or make your own character and walk around in an open world. And I was like, obviously, I'm going to make my own character. <laughs> and Steven, I spent an hour and a half in the character yeah. creator. Yeah. Immediately was like, I can't do this. <laughs> I was like, I can't. I, this, is, this has been such a good time making a character that I, I need to put this game down and come back to it later. <laughs> because I, I was like, I don't think I'm prepared for what comes next after this. Because this by itself yeah. has been so compelling. You can adjust the sitting height of your character, <laughs> which I didn't know was like a term. And the first thing they tell you also is uh, depending on how long your limbs are and how tall you are will define like how you are as a fighter also. Yeah. Which obviously just sends you into this like rabbit hole tornado spin of like, I mean, what kind of character do I make? I, I, I don't even know how the game plays yet. How do I know who I'm supposed to be? Amazing. The first character I tried to make, I immediately thought this is going to be perfect for Lester. Uh, oh, whenever there's yeah. a character creator, I try to make this lizard man who only punches. He's a character we made in Oblivion and I love him. And whenever I can add to the Lester canon, I do. Yeah. I couldn't make a big lizard and the only close options at <laughs> literally ended up making a big cat man, his cosmic opposite, which wow. is when I put the game down and went for a walk. Yeah. I came back and I was like, enough jokes, <laughs> enough irony. Let me make like a character I would want to be in the roster. Let me like, make a cool character. Hell and yeah. I did that. And great. they were fine. They were a little bit, you know, it's it's hard to make someone who looks the same quality as, you know, professional character yeah. designers, right? In this way, right. talk about learning code, this advanced tool set of, of <laughs> yeah. creation. Just to be clear, I did the same thing uh, because right when you start the character creator it's like we're not going to save your progress over into the main game and i was like now is not the time for waluigi that'll be a that'll be a full release <laughs> you situation. can definitely make waluigi yeah i'm sure there are people screaming at their at their phones being like god damn it brendan make waluigi it's coming trust me i then so i i made the character i thought was pretty cool and i i played a bit as her and then was like yeah i like her but i also feel like maybe somewhere in the middle between like a joke and a cool character yeah one of the pre-made, like there are there are sort of pre-made characters you can kind of use as a starting point. One of them is just a big robot, like a big robot man. I didn't even see that. That's awesome. So I just, I took him, I gave him a pompadour and I named him Paul Seven. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> then I started playing the game and I was like, it's almost midnight. I need to stop playing this. Yeah. But when I played the game for a bit, it's like not bad but i there seems to be like a whole single player rpg mode with your character that you make which is really cool and you can like choose what moves they have equipped i think it's also entirely single player because i i remember when soul Calibur 6 came out and they also let you make your own character online and the competitive scene got completely unraveled because there was no way to gauge how good characters were because everyone was playing as a custom character and similarly like height will determine like how powerful and how long their reach is mm. so there was a mess so i feel like they probably want to avoid that here but i also don't like on one hand i really really appreciate that they're going for like a really new really original single player mode because traditionally fighting games especially now there's like an arcade mode but like not really any incentive to play that because you have all the characters until there's inevitably dlc like it used to be that like playing the arcade mode would unlock new characters and ha also having just played the first soul caliber recently on dreamcast that game has an awesome single player one the arcade mode is fun and short enough and it's fun to unlock all the characters but there's also like the mission mode where you get like the best dm like writing narrations about you walking into like a cave and stumbling upon lizard man yeah 
So I think there's a huge place for like single player to come back for fighting games. And I would, I'm really curious to see what this feels like in the full game. But in the demo, I just found it to be like, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of systems to be aware of, and I don't know what the payoff is. So maybe I was being a bit harsh to say that, like, I think it's bad. I don't think it's, I think it's really interesting right now, but I'm not sold on it. It's mm. kind of where I'm at with, with that mode. So yeah, we'll see how it goes. At the end of the day, though, I'm getting the game for the fighting game part of it. And I think that's going to be fantastic. So yeah, very excited. Uh, while, while we just took a lunch break in between the last segment and this one, I turned on my Xbox. I was like, time to get back into it. And then I immediately was like, well, I have 30 minutes, actually, maybe. If I if I jump back into it, I'll just go back into the character creator and spend another hour and a half. <laughs> so you know what I did, Steven? I played Oblivion. <laughs> Oblivion, the ideal single player mode of a fighting game. Yeah, exactly. I just helped a man on a boat and then uh, it was time to come back. <laughs> go ahead. Laugh. Laugh. No one else helps me. What? You're serious? You want to help me? Okay, okay, I'll show you. I can tell but only because you. Sorry, I, I can tell you exactly what this guy said to me. Which yeah, here. I took a screenshot of it because I was obsessed with it. I, I ran into this guy. His name was Algot the Northerner. Do you know who I'm talking about oh, already? No, but I love him this already. guy's name was Algot the Northerner. <laughs> and the, the first thing he said to me as soon as I went up and talked to him was, "You're talking to Algot the Northerner. Guess you got nothing better to do." <laughs> <laughs> Well, time to reinstall Tinder and make that my profile because that's <laughs> the best lead to meeting someone I've ever heard. Yeah, guy, guy's got to be a little bit more confident, I think. He's got a great he name. He's got he's got the name of somebody who's going to say something great. Yeah. And it's not that he didn't, but uh, you know, I, I think I think I think it's a different flavor than what I was expecting from Algot the Northerner. He's the Northerner. They'll give you names of people like we when we streamed it years ago, there was a person we met named like Greta the God Hater. And you talk to her. She goes like, I hate the gods. Enough with the gods. I hate the gods. And then there's nothing else. There's no quest. Yep. It's like, why is this? They really just wanted us to hear a little bit of like atheism in the world of Cyrodiil. Interesting. Yep. got the Northerner. In a series where uh, they made a whole game about Northerners, it's cool that there's a guy <laughs> who is canonically the Northerner. I wonder if he is the Dragonborn. He, like, <laughs> he, he finds his confidence. I'm going to make Algot the Northerner my next Skyrim playthrough. Absolutely. Fustrada translates to guess you got nothing better, better to do. do. <laughs> yeah. Better to da. <laughs> Fustro got nothing better to die. <laughs> I'm so sorry. He's seeing you. Yeah, we should we should take a break. <laughs> we'll do our next segment. Bye bye. Maybe actually the last one. Maybe the last one. Steven, I've heard whispers on the wind that you're playing the 2023 video game of the year, Chain Echoes. I, so here's the thing about me and Shane Deco's. Yeah. We played it at the ve- like I think the week I was like home leading up to Game of the Year. Yeah, it like came up and you're like, can this count? Like I've I've put in I think you had put in 30 hours in like a week or two yeah. of that game. Yeah, and we decided that it would count for the next year. Yeah, because it was like a mid December 2022 release. Brutal, brutal release timing. Yeah, and I think it's it's been a pretty big hit. I mean, I think like in a year. Like this year began with Octopath 2. We have Sea of Stars on the horizon, uh, 8-Bit Adventures 2. Yeah. There there are a ton of, of, as we refer to them, purposely retro RPGs. I do want a new word. I think we can do better than that. 
that feels like a, a stand-in for genre. But, you know, I guess homages. Chandekos is very much a game that is visibly and and spiritually pulling from Chrono Trigger. Many Final Fantasies, even in its marketing, it, it kind of is that. Yeah. Um, and we've talked about these types of games a lot, starting with the Tokyo RPG Factory games, where I think our conclusion after playing those games, and, you know, we enjoyed them to mixed results, but, like, I think the best games that are purposely homages and at a certain point everything is homage but i think when your game is like really wearing the influence on its sleeves and trying to like really directly reference a moment of game history the more you pull from the better it's going to be because if you're just saying we liked chrono trigger a lot you're saying compare this to the best game ever made yeah yeah it's a, it's a slippery slope so chain deck goes i think is really interesting because pretty immediately there are if you're a fan of of old school final fantasy or chrono trigger or many other rpgs there are like direct nods to things like there are moves called cross slash or X slash. Yeah. There is like sort of the Magitek armor going on with the sky pilots. Um, the game opens literally almost exactly the same way Chrono Trigger opens also. Yeah. yeah. But purposely, I think it, it, it opens with your mom waking you up and then slapping you in the face. Yeah. Revealing it's a dream. Right. And I think that kind of that one moment sort of represents the whole game because while it very much is an homage, it's also really interrogating a lot of things. Like It's yeah. interrogating a lot of tropes and a lot of like decisions. It's showing tremendous respect for for this era of game but also questioning like what should be in there and what we could do differently now and the end result is a game that feels really modern and really unique it's also interesting too after you brought 12 to the show there's a lot of 12 in here a lot of final fantasy 12 in here yeah you're totally right the starting city feels very similar there's even the creatures that have the sort of like dog flap ears that are like lizards oh yeah that are kind of similar yeah and the um, there's like a job board that has like the same chessboard palette of the license board from 12 as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and even just like it feels kind of evilisey. I feel like it fe- has this sort of political yeah. story that you would find. It's definitely darker than 12. I think you've cracked the case. You're totally right. This is this is maybe why this <laughs> game worked, worked so well for me. As the resident Final Fantasy fan, I think the loudest influences are six and 12. Um, because mm-hmm. what it also does is whenever there's a, in the beginning hours, at least when they introduce a new character, the action stops and there's like a spotlight on them and it will give a brief summary of who they are, which I love. And that that is a direct reference to Final Fantasy VI, which I've also been playing. I picked up the pixel remaster of six on Switch specifically because on the Switch and PS4 versions, they changed the text. So it's now like more like. The Super Nintendo text, and they also added back the opening credits. The fact that those two things are plugs shows, I think, the kind of fumbled launch of these games, which is a shame because I think the Pixel Remasters are excellent. Like, I think if you are a fan of those games, you should absolutely get them. They're 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 a fantastic way to experience those yeah. entries. Um, but yeah, I, I and, and also if you have it on PC, you can mod in the fonts pretty easily, so like that's not an issue. But I just figured, why not get it on Switch? Um, and I've been playing six one because I haven't played six in a long time. And two, I wanted to play chain Echoes and Final Fantasy six kind of side by side to sort of like see and kind of compare the two. Um, I knew there were different enough experiences, but I was like wondering like, what is, what is six's legacy specifically? And that's a game that I think you and I would love to do a bonus about one day, because that is like second to Chrono Trigger as like best RPG of all time level game. Yeah. And, uh, 
playing it again, like it also is very much about the ensemble. So like whenever a new character is introduced, they'll get a spotlight and both Chain Echoes and Final Fantasy VI switch player control very often. And that is such a great trick and and it's so effective at telling an ensemble story because it makes everybody feel like the main character um and that's very much the case in chained echoes like there are some characters that are driving the plot more than others but i i couldn't really tell you like i guess glenn by default but glenn also seems like a deconstruction of the main character because you mm. play as him in the very beginning and then he kind of disappears a uh, small spoiler but like you play as him in the prologue and then he comes back way later and there's like kind of Frodo don't look too far into the light stuff happening with him. So yeah. I'm just like very curious where his story goes. Um, and then you have Sienna who I love, who's like kind of the Han Solo thief of the group who like pretends not to care, but clearly does. Mm-hmm. And she's more along for the ride, which I think is also great, but like you kind of want her to be the main character. Cause she's like the most interesting right away. Yeah. Have you, um, um mm. I'm trying, I don't want to spoil anything. Damn. Uh, yeah, so let me, let me, I'll say where I'm at sure, just, yeah. just to kind of frame the conversation. So in Shane Deco's, I am basically, I think around 10 hours in one thing that kind of prevented me from getting into this game sooner was that I kept having to restart it. So like in December I played it uh, cause I didn't have my Xbox or switch. I had my steam deck with me and nothing else, something like that. And I played chain decos via X cloud streaming to kind of mix results. Mm. It was a little, the connection was a little bit off and then I was like, okay, I'll just, I'll get it on switch when I'm back home. And then just like, didn't. And then I got distracted by the things I got Octopath 2. And then I saw more and more people be like, yeah, Chain Deco's is like the one. It's like not only the best like homage RPG, but it's one of the best RPGs in a long time. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm busy. I'm playing all these other games. And then finally, I'm like, I just need to get it and like actually play it. Yes. So I played through the the like opening title card section like three or four times <laughs> and for some reason when i was playing it on steam deck it kept like freezing at certain points mm. uh, i'm not sure that's just me but i had some technical issues with it so i started again on xbox and i am now 10 hours in i'm at the point where basically like i said they switched perspective a lot so they have formed the the party as we know it currently i think there are two more character slots that are empty So I have six characters. They've all agreed to journey together and we're now kind of approaching the more open worlds part of the game. Nice. Nice. Um, So I'm in the town Basil currently. Yeah. Or Basil. Okay. You you haven't hit the point that I was going to allude to. So uh, it's a good thing I didn't say anything. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I, I, it's been a long time since I've picked that game up Um, where I made it to, because I was playing that game pretty much nonstop uh, was like after act three, I would say where the game like really opens up even in, in ways that um, you both probably can and can't anticipate simultaneously, but the game really just like turns into a completely new thing kind of in act three. And I put the game down at that point because I, again, had played like so much of it so quickly and more stuff started coming out. And I was like, I can't only play chain echoes, but um, I'm definitely going to finish it before the year is out. Uh, I I wonder if it's going to be a little bit too hard to get back into after a long period away. But um, I just I just love that combat so much. I think the combat in that game is just spectacular, especially once because you can have four people uh, up front at any given time. But you can also start to swap characters in and out in the middle of combat. So in case like, you know, one character that you have in your reserves has the weakness that uh, you need to exploit 
to take down an enemy, you can swap them in on a turn if you want to. Um, just even that by itself, that ability to utilize everyone in your party at all times, I think is like... You make four tag teams, basically. Yeah, is, just is genius. Cool. It's just like really, really, really smart. Um, and and deciding as you're making your way through specific points, like who who you want to be as your like lead team and who you want in your reserves and realizing kind of in certain moments when you need to change that strategy, which is frequently because the game is pretty challenging. Um, also great. And on top of that, the game has a bunch of like really awesome um, like difficulty setting stuff that you can change really at any moment. Yeah. Uh, so you can kind of tune the game down to be as easy as you want if you just want to experience the story because on top of all of this, story is incredible. Story is really good. Yeah, it, it's got a really, it's got a lot of great quality of life features, including after every battle, uh, you're like back to full health. Yeah. Which sounds like it would be too easy, but like pretty much every battle demands it can a go certain wrong. level of strategy. Yeah. yeah. So you still have consumable items you can use. It took me a second to realize, like, I mean, why aren't they letting me use these items out of combat? It's because everyone's back to full health. You can only use them like in battle when someone's hurt. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think we talked a bit about the overdrive system. I think that's a really interesting, like, framing device for combat because I think the two best examples of turn-based combat I've played this year are Octopath 2 and Chained Echoes. Mm. And they're very different. Octopath 2 is all about breaking enemy defenses and then piling on damage. So it, it kind of has the flow of like a persona or an SMT where it's like save your big attack for like when the enemy is like defenseless. Yeah. Chained Echoes really wants there to be a give and take. They want there to be moments where you're more defensive and more offensive and you're encouraged to switch party members too because there's an overdrive meter and basically like overall as turns progress, the overdrive meter goes up and most actions will cause the overdrive meter to go up and on the left there's like a yellow portion of the bar in the middle is this big green portion where when the marker is there you're in overdrive mode basically means that your characters will like take less damage and do more damage they'll just be better mm -hmm. and then on the right there's the red where if you go too far it's the opposite they'll take more damage and do less damage so basically every time you take a turn you have to look at the overdrive meter and see what will help and there's also every few turns there'll be a random type of move that will dramatically reduce the meter so then like you can look at what moves you have available and like which ones will do what or if you're willing to take the risk and it's like you know i know this is going to put me in the red but i need to do this move right now i find it to be a really incredible system because it really makes you use all your options you know i think sometimes in turn-based combat like I forget to defend. I just forget that's an option. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm usually either attacking or healing and having the game be like, you know, it actually might be good to have like four or five turns where you're just defending or switching in a new party member. And I like having teams that are kind of inverses. Like I have um, Victor, who is my favorite. Everyone called that in the Discord. I kept getting added <laughs> like... I can't wait for Steven to be Victor. Victor is essentially like, what if Riker was Shakespeare? Um, <laughs> it, <laughs> yeah. So he's a fascinating character though, because it's in this like medieval society where like class is a big part of it. It seems like you're kind of born into it or you're not. But Victor is one of the few people that he's such a good playwright that he's become sort of this like celebrated 
person by every like everyone loves victor yeah which is kind of i feel like they the writers or the writer i'm not sure how many people worked on this game but i imagine when they were writing the story they were like everyone in the party is like kind of gray and kind of an asshole so like maybe there should just be like one person that everyone loves so it makes sense that you're like <laughs> running around this world and helping people mm-hmm. um and victor is that they also kind of allude to the fact that he may be a, a of a humanoid race that live for a really long time so it's suggested that a lot of his plays are like just parts Things of his happened. life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're like, they're like, you described like this prehistoric civilization so vividly. And he's like, oh yeah, you know, I love, I also play the trombone. Hoo-ha. You know, um, but uh, his whole thing is like, he buffs the party and his ultimate move is he puts on, he forms a band of just himself. And that's the moment I fell in love. I'm like, this is incredible. <laughs> but I have him switch for, I forgot his name, but the guy who's Glenn's friend, the other mercenary, who's like more of a traditional tank that can like heal and yeah, stuff. Yeah. And I have a Len, I think is her name, who's the princess. A lot of her attacks are all elemental. So uh, her use is like find the elemental weakness and kind of exploit it. But she can also do a move that removes all the buffs from the enemy, which is really useful. It's hugely helpful. Yeah. I flip her with Rob, who is the problematic member of the group. And uh, he he's like if Lorenz was actually toxic. Yeah. Um, basically, I think his character is really interesting because a lot of a lot of games will introduce a character like that into your party will give you the kind of like you know braggadocious or like kind of shitty person um but usually they end up having like a lovable bent to them is is the idea and in this case they're like no he is just an asshole he's just kind of like mean to everybody always it's not a coincidence that all his moves are like poison and traps yeah and stuff <laughs> and what's fun too is like once you get out into the open world like there are some dialogue choices but it's actually you choose which member of the party speaks up and the Rob choices are always like, do you want to be as rude as possible? Yeah. I don't like Rob, but I think he's a great character because he is just like a bad guy. Yeah. And there are so many characters in the game anyway that it's helpful to have somebody who uh, it's helpful, I think, for coloring the world in a little bit to have somebody who has like really shitty opinions. You know, it's like actually helpful to know what the shitty opinions are in that world in some cases. It also kind of reframes the princess character because she she calls out Rob a decent amount but i'm like if this guy is your main confidant what does that say about you Mm. you know what i mean like and also how she speaks to glenn and the other people like they're thieves even though they like saved everybody so i think with glenn rob and uh and len there's definitely a visible spin on like the princess the chosen knight and like the retainer yeah they're all kind of weird versions of those tropes. And then you have victor who's who's incredible i'm excited for you to get more people in your party yeah so i think you know, it just sort of, I mean, it's hard. It's not like, oh, this game is good because it's pulling from so many things, but it's it's clearly selective at what it wants to include in the mix. Um, and then there's the whole like, you know, in the in the tutorial, it's like you push this button to call your sky pilot, which I'm like, I know eventually I'm going to get like sky armor because the game starts in that too. Not a spoiler. So like there's a whole like Xenogear part of this game too, uh, which is incredible. So Playing this and then also playing FF6 alongside it, what I what I kind of reminded myself about Final Fantasy VI is that Final Fantasy VI in some ways is also kind of a critical look at a fantasy story. Like six in some ways is 
a deviation and a critique from what was established in like four and six both. I think while they've kind of become the blueprint for RPGs and for Final Fantasy, four begins with the hero on the bad side. Yeah. Questioning like, are we the baddies? You know, it's basically like that for the first like third of the game. And that story is all about redemption. And six, meanwhile, I think even just the decision of like, there really is no main character. And it's like all these characters are kind of in orbit of the main villain whose motivation is just nihilism basically like it's uh kefka is one of the more frightening villains in final fantasy history because it's essentially like what if the worst person you know fell ass backwards into power (laughs) and like that is actually a believable concern Mm -hmm. you know it's like why like what would happen if the worst person you knew was given godlike powers or i think about akira right where like akira to me has always been like the inverse spider-man where it's like (laughs) In Spider-Man's case, it's like this lovable dork gets superpowers, uses them to help people. But it's like if you were to give like an angry, misguided, lost soul who's 14 years old godlike powers, it would probably be more like Akira, unfortunately. Um, that that power corrupts, right? Yeah. So I think Kefka's a great villain, not a hot take, but but seeing how the story is told in six and seeing like, you know, I think there is Terra feels more like the main character because the plot is kind of also in orbit of her and her sort of mysterious origin. Um, that game begins saying like magic is a thing of the past, which also in a Final Fantasy game feels like a bold statement, you know, like the fact that magic is extinct and yet there's this character who can use magic. Uh, meanwhile, the Empire is using all these like Shinra-esque devices to bring magic back. That to me kind of reads as a deconstruction. And I think we often see that. Like we often see works that are homages to a group of things become the new thing that homages pull from. Like Star Wars is, is the most concrete example of that. Mm. So it was fascinating to play FF6 and Chained Echoes and be like, these games are kind of doing similar things. Obviously, one is from decades ago and what was maybe seen as like revolutionary at the time is now sort of standard. But even still, I think it's really cool to see like what a fresh angle FF6 was taking at the time. Um, And also I noticed it Final Fantasy VI is the beginning of all the weird mini games like snowboarding and FF7. So the game begins and like one of the first things that happens is um, once you finish Terra's like opening chapter, it switches to Locke, who is sort of the thief with the heart of gold character. Um, and he goes to save Terra and a bunch of Moogles pop out and they're like, we'll help you. And you have to place the Moogles like a strategy game in like various parts of the map to prevent the Empire forces from catching up to Terra. And I'm like, you can tell this is the game that came out before seven because seven is just like full of that kind of stuff. <laughs> so I think what's interesting, though, the biggest thing is like Final Fantasy six when it came out without spoiling too much the second half of that game is very different than the first and i i would i would say the second half of final fantasy 6 feels like an early attempt to do an open world game where it's much less on the rails yeah and that is like it's still a really great part of the game but that's also where the game design falls apart a little bit like it's so effective emotionally and narratively and it's a really cool and revolutionary part of the game but it's also like i don't know where to go i have no idea what to do like that you never really feel that way in six until that part of it at least for me i will say that chained echoes gets into that a little bit but kind of pads out that I don't know what to do or where to go with um, a bunch of side quests that are very literalized uh, and are, are really easy to kind of track down, um, which, yeah. which helps that a lot because um, because 
at the at the point that you hit like late second act early third act you have pretty much like the entire world at your disposal and you know you can fast travel around between things and stuff and it becomes a lot of like do you want to do the main quest or do you want to just explore this world uh which is I, i think more fun yeah the other thing too that's i think kind of interesting for me to observe is like the turn-based combat in old Final Fantasy games isn't bad. It's fun, but it's kind of a stand-in. Like, it feels sort of like that type of combat fit the story they are trying to tell versus, like, a game that was more gameplay first. Like, I think of the Final Fantasy games of that era, 5 is really the only one that was like, we're going to think about a really cool combat system and a job system that will be, like, the focus of the experience yeah. over story. I bring that up because not to say, like, I think Final Fantasy VI is fun to play. There's not, like, a ton of depth until the very end. Like, you don't really get a lot of customization over a character until the latter half of the game. Mm. But what's interesting is that a lot of the more modern homages to Final Fantasy have had, like, incredibly deep turn-based combat. So I feel like it's it's kind of cool to see, like, the series not really, like prioritize that as much as the story and then have the follow-ups to that game be like we can do both we can actually have a really great really intricate turn-based combat system with a great story too so it's been fun i will probably put six on on hold for a bit because that's something that i would love to play alongside you and like talk way more about this is by by no means last time we're talking about final fantasy six but uh it's helped me kind of have even more appreciation for chained echoes because it's not just like wasn't it cool when there were the spotlight <laughs> introductions in six? It's like there's a very intimate understanding about why those games succeeded and a new direction for this game to succeed in. Uh, so it's, it's I think I think it's like one of the best examples of a game like this, of this sort of like purposeful retro homage because it feels so different while having all these recognizable pieces yeah i i I think that game is just spectacular if if you're interested in that style of game literally at all chained echoes is like a must um and i i found that it runs great on switch but as you mentioned is also available all over the place yeah it's on game pass currently um i went ahead and purchased it on xbox and i don't mind having purchased this game two times now because it's good uh, and I want to support it. Yeah. So. And there's all there's I mean, a- Xbox in the nature of Game Pass is things come and things go, you know, and it would really yeah. be a bummer to be like, you know, 40 hours into that game and then have it removed from Game Pass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, I think your save would, would stay if you do choose to buy. Oh, yeah, eventually. probably. Yeah, you're right. That's what I, I had that with Dragon Quest 11. So I was playing it on Game Pass and then I was like, I have put in triple digits, my guy. I need to buy this <laughs> just to just to see it through. Yeah. But that's all I have to say for now. I think both of these games we'll talk about again. I'm just very happy. I'm like far enough in to kind of get why Chandekos is so beloved. I am now a fan and uh, Pixel Remaster of Final Fantasy VI, great way to play the game. If you've never played ask, VI, yeah. um, I think I think it's a great way to experience that game because that's there isn't really like a definitive edition for that game because the Super Nintendo version has like a ton of glitches, which at this point are kind of endearing, but some stuff like one of the stats just doesn't work. You know, it is like evasion, not a thing yeah. in Super Nintendo. <laughs> and the Game Boy Advance uh, uh, version of the game is more refined and I think has a couple, it might have extra content, but the music is like slightly less good. Uh, there is, I think, a a patch of um, the Game Boy Advance game with the Super Nintendo music which is cool. Um, but honestly, the pixel remaster, like the, the backgrounds look incredible. The sprites look really good. The sprites are easier to read. Like they, they don't, they're not the like horrifying smoothed out ones that are on the mobile ports 
or the previous mobile ports, right. but you can kind of see their like facial expressions and body movement a little bit better than in the original, which is cool. Yeah. Um, and the reorchestrations are stunning. Yeah, like, they're so good. One of my favorite Final Fantasy songs is um, Awakening, which pl- it's sort of like a spin on Terra's theme that plays when she like first, because w- it begins and she has a slave crown on, which like prevents her from thinking for herself. And you have to play as her as she's being like ordered by the Empire to attack this town. It's it's a pretty harrowing intro, honestly. And then when that gets removed, she like wakes up and is herself. And that's actually when you name the character, mm-hmm. which I've always loved. It's like she gets her identity back. Yeah, that game is really good. Hot take. Uh, it's a good story. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I I uh, I am very happy I, I got to experience Shandekos, and I'm gonna play more of it. And these are both like bonus candidates in my opinion. So more on this soon. Yeah, I was just thinking idly for a second that a thing that we will not get probably, but I would really love is if they did a Pixel Remaster collection for Dragon Quest also. Because oh yeah, because we already have one, two, and three on the Switch, and then they're remaking three again. But I feel like four, five, and six are just kind of like floating out in nowheresville. I feel like they should port the DS versions. Honestly, I mean that's what yeah that's the one that's on mobile, and I feel like the D the look of those games is so stunning. Yeah, I love the way like the environments look in uh, Dragon Quest Five on DS. Yeah, it's so good. Uh, I I also played a little bit of the english patch of the ps2 version of dragon quest 5 which is by the same team yeah um it's it's also like stunning uh yeah what i'd give for any of that stuff anyway should we actually wrap up this episode (laughs) speaking of dragon quest 5 it's a it's also considered one of the best rpgs of all time (laughs) and you're a dad um anyway yeah let's wrap up into the cast at online you know the drill why don't we keep it short and simple unlike this episode yeah that sounds good to me thanks for listening thanks for listening uh see you next time bye Wow, we re- that was really, really quick ending. All right, talk to you later. Talk to- <laughs> <laughs> no, you hang up. <laughs> All right, talk to you later. Bye-bye. Goodbye. End the story in your own way. That's what they say in Honkai Star Rail. Goodbye. Garbage. Got online.